right. This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the regular meeting of October 10th, 2023. The time is now 12.05 p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters Building Commission Chambers, as well as virtually via Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, please call the roll of commissioners in attendance. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Here. Thank you. Commissioner Cho? Present. Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman? Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa? Present. Thank you. And Commissioner Mohammed? Present. Thank you. We do have a full commission here today. Excellent. A few housekeeping items before we begin. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn off your cell phones or put it on silent. For everyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you're a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually or are a member of the uh, staff in a presentation and are actively addressing the commission. Members of the public uh, addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak and will turn them back off at the conclusion of their remarks. For anyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. Please also remember to address your request to be recognized to speak through the chair and wait to speak until you have been recognized. You'll turn on your microphones on and off as needed. All the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method, so it's clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the essential ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please now stand and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Okay, first item of business today is approval of the agenda. As a reminder, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, it is not necessary to pull the item from the consent agenda. Rather, a commissioner may offer supporting or opposing comments later in this meeting once we get to the consent agenda. Please wait until the motion to approve the consent agenda is on the floor for these comments, if any. It, however, it is appropriate at this time if the commissioner wants to ask questions of staff or wishes to have a dialogue on a consent agenda item to request the item to be pulled for separate discussion. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or motions to arrange the order of the day? Commissioner Cho. Yes, Commissioner Calkins. Uh, no, I do not. I just want to make a quick comment about item 8C, which is an example of the great work that Dave Soike and others did on the delegation of authority. You can see in this, um, it's our monthly notification of prior executive director delegation actions, September 2023. It's a great document. It's really easy to read. It also demonstrates how, keeping in mind our previous delegation of authority was, was it 300 or 350? I've already 300. You can see there's a number of items on here that are great examples of the kind of decisions that should be made at the executive level. And so uh, it explains in part why our meetings have gone quicker this year than they have in previous years. So. Thank you, Steve, your team, and, and everyone who helped with that update to the Delegation of Authority. Thank you. Commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda as presented? Second. Great. The motion has been made and seconded. Are there any objections to the approval of the agenda as presented? 
All right, hearing none, the agenda is approved as presented. We do not have any special orders scheduled for today, so we'll move on. Uh, next on our agenda is the Executive Director's Report. Executive Director Metric, you have the floor. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Before we begin today, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the terrible violence in Israel and Gaza. I know that for many of us, especially our Jewish and Muslim employees, the current conflict is incredibly difficult and tragic. Our hearts go out to the innocent victims and everyone impacted by this conflict. And I just wanted to begin with that. Thank you. Commissioners, turning to our work before us, I'd like to begin by thanking you for your engagement, questions, and feedback during our aviation budget study session this morning. I hope you found it useful as I did, and it helped bring you one step closer to, doing, to being able to be effectively consider our final 2024 proposal next month. And I especially want to thank Managing Director Little and all of the aviation and finance staff who worked so hard to develop and present this morning's materials. Uh, I'll, as we lead into the budget discussions later on today, it's always a trade-off to how much detail to have, and I appreciate your feedback on things that you found useful and that were lacking in the presentation, so that'll help us in uh, preparation for the future. Um, and I look forward to our similarly robust discussion later today during our presentation on the draft 2024 maritime and economic development budgets. For this afternoon's meeting, I'd like to begin my remarks by welcoming everyone to the fourth quarter of the year. I know everyone's excited about that because that's when uh, a lot of work continues to get done in the fourth quarter. This ch the changing of the season marks the last sprint towards the end of the year, the height of the business planning and budget processes, and a period of reflection on annual performance goals that were set, early that were set earlier in the year. October is also notable because it also marks a period where we recognize Latino Heritage Month, Filipino American History Month, and Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as well as an Indigenous Peoples Day on October 9th and, a, and National Coming Out Day on our October 11th. This month, the port recognizes Indigenous peoples as a source of inspiration, strength, wisdom, knowledge, and resilience, and celebrates the contributions of Fil Filipino American and Latino communities in our region, our country, and here at the Port of Seattle. As the Port of Seattle works to advance our goal of becoming a model for equity, diversity, and inclusion, I'm pleased to recognize these observances. Speaking of resilience, September was National Preparedness, Preparedness Month, and many of you may have uh, been thinking about that this Sunday when we experienced uh, this region's 4.2 magnitude earthquake. We saw no damage to any port facilities and staff are working to determine what additional inspections are needed. Of course, we can all, cannot, cannot always count on this being the case. So Sunday night was, a, was an important reminder of our seismic risks to our region. The port's resilience assessment includes procedures for damage assessment report after a seismic event. In addition, this earthquake serves as a good reminder for personal and family preparedness. Matter of fact, I heard in different conversations people talking about their preparedness for their families should it have gone to something else. In addition, the port will participate in this year's International Shakeout Day, which will take place next week on Thursday, October 19th at 10.19 a.m. Our staff will join millions of Americans across the world practicing earthquake safety and preparedness. I look forward to next week's drill. As, as we saw Sunday night, you never know when the next real event may be. We want to work here to be prepared at the Port of Seattle. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight a few items. 
On our action agenda, we have a request for the next pa package for our sound insulation program and a request to reach full design for our T91 Uplands project. The sound insulation authorization is specifically to begin work on our places of worship, so it marks another milestone in our progress of expediting this program under the Commission's uh, direction. The T91 Uplands authorization is a long-discussed effort to add Seattle's to Seattle's maritime and industrial facilities, and I'm very excited to celebrate our advancement of this project when we get to, be, when we get to that part of the agenda. It is especially timely given the city's recent approval of new maritime and industrial lands policies. Finally, you'll receive a briefing and report out on our evaluation of the South King County Community Impact Fund. I'm very much looking forward to having staff share with you the incredible impact that the fund has already had in our community with great details about who we have supported in their work. Of note, today's discussion will be mainly backward looking in this, in this regard and we'll also be doing a separate presentation at a future commission meeting about how we continue to move forward on the fund for next year and beyond. So, commissioners, this concludes my remarks. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, we are now moving on to committee reports. Erica Chung, commission strategic advisor, will provide the report. Good afternoon, President Cho, commissioners, executive director Metric. I have two reports for you today. The Highline Forum met on September 27th with community co-chair Des Moines Mayor Mahoney chairing the meeting and Port um, Co-Chair Commissioner Fellman attending. The forum received an update from the host city of Des Moines, Mayor Mahoney, regarding the economic development focus in Des Moines, public infrastructure investments, and efforts to bring people to the city by energizing the waterfront. The Port's Director of Aviation Business Intelligence, Michael Drollinger, provided an update on SCA activity and travel outlook for 2023, with travel being close to our record 51.8 million passengers this year and surpassing that milestone in 2024. Guadalupe Torres from the Port's Office of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, Elaine Zayden and A.J. McClure, Port's Community Engagement staff, provided an update on the work products from the South King County Community Impact Fund and announced the fourth round of environmental grant applications are currently being solicited until October 30th. Aviation Director Lance Little provided the start update, the SCA Stakeholder Advisory Roundtable, from the August 23rd meeting and reported on the most recent START Steering Committee meeting where they agreed to have START's Aviation Noise Working Group take on the responsibility of SCA's airport forthcoming Technical Review Committee for the next Part 150 Noise Study, which is expected to launch in spring 2024. As part of the round, the table sharing, Commissioner Fellament noted the arrival of the Hukulei Polynesian Voyager to Puget Sound in late August and ecotourism pilot projects being discussed. Director Little noted monitoring a potential federal government shutdown and planning to manage anticipated impacts. Local government relations manager Dave Kaplan noted the port's partnership with other jurisdictions on the September 29th Green Jobs, Green Futures Summit and SCA Airport again being certified as salmon safe in its practices to protect water quality and habitat. On Wednesday, October 4th, Commissioners Hasegawa and Fellman convened the Sustainable, Sustainable Environment and Climate Committee where they were briefed on the scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions results from 2022 for the Maritime Division and the Aviation Division. Staff shared that in 2022, Maritime Scope 1 and 2 
greenhouse gas emissions decreased by 17% from 2005 baseline, which accounts for 14% of the port-wide emissions, and aviation scope 1 and 2 greenhouse gas emissions decreased by 48% from the 2005 baseline, which accounts for 86% of the port-wide emissions. Commissioners discussed the importance of tracking and communicating the investments we're making and the health benefits to the community. Commissioners were then briefed on the Duwamish Park assessment strategy, which will include a strong community engagement component. This concludes my report. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Erica. Any questions for Steve or Erica? All right. Thank you very much to both of you. We are now moving on to public comment uh, section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. Before we take public comment, let's review our rules for in-person and virtual public comment. Clerk Hart, please play the recorded rules. Give us one moment here while Aubrey pulls that up. The Port of Seattle Commission welcomes you to our meeting today. As noted, public comment is an important part of the public process, and the Port of Seattle Commission thanks you for joining us. The Commission accepts in-person, virtual, and written public comment regarding matters related to the conduct of port business. Before we proceed, here are the Commission's public comment rules of procedure for your information. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two minute period for each speaker. The commission reserves the right to receive comments specifically related to the conduct of port business. If comments are not related to the conduct of port business, the presiding officer will stop the speaker and ask that comments be kept to matters related to the conduct of port business. This rule applies to both introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the commission as a body and not to individual commissioners. Disruptions of commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior and language obscene language and gestures, refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment, leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment, provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk, and any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Any disruption will result in a speaker's microphone being immediately shut off by the presiding officer and a warning or loss of speaking privileges or removal from the meeting room may occur as provided in the commission's bylaws. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. 
We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us today here in the meeting room. When your name is called, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself, then please repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of court business. You may turn on your camera at this time. The two minute timer will then begin. If you're on the Teams meeting and at the same time streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. When you have concluded your remarks, you may again turn off your camera and mute your speaker. If you are speaking from the meeting room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name for the record, and state your topic related to the conduct of court business. Our public comment period will now commence. Thank you again for joining us today. All right, thank you very much. We have a healthy list of public commentators today. Um, well, only one person in person, and that is Alex Zimmerman. Uh, uh, my name is Alex Zimmerman, and I live in Bellevue for more than 35 years. I, want, I come today for one particular reason, because I care about safety of Seattle port. What is include too many airline in too many big ships, you know what it means? Because situation right now very, very dangerous. We need to protect exactly from terrorists, the Moses Iranian Muslim terrorists. They right now provoke war in Middle East, when 100,000 people will be dead. So I'm absolutely sure something will be in America too, next step, yeah. It's normal, it's happened before, nothing unusual. For this reason, I want something talking about commissioner, what is we have here. And first I want to impeach commissioner Cho, and I explain to you why. All commissioner, what is we have here, you know what is mean, represent only one party, democratic mafia, a fascist organization, what is pure support a terrorism, like Iranian terrorism, and another Palestinian terrorism, for example, and pure anti-Semite. So in this situation, I want what is, and I talk about this before, impeach commissioner Cho, you know what it mean? So because when you start something doing about this, we make situation much better and much safety. And when you start impeach in administration supposed to be doing this, you can do this in website. Many impeachment right now include President United States can be right now in the website. In this situation, we can make situation much safety if we will show everybody who terrorists, so Seattle port ready for them. So they don't come, it don't destroy us life, it don't kill people. Stand up America, stand up America now is stop fascism, democratic fascism. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Next speaker is, um, uh, all the remaining speakers are actually going to be virtual. Um, Michael Jaworski. Yes, hi, President. Thank you. Excellent. If you could state your name and um, the topic related to poor business, we will then start the clock. Yes, hi. My name is Michael Jaworski. I'm Director of Global Crew Government Affairs for Royal Caribbean Group. And I just want to speak a little bit about the port operations for this uh, past season and a little bit about our crew. 
And as I stated, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Jaworski. I'm director of the Global Crew Government Affairs for the Royal Caribbean Group. First, I want to thank the Port of Seattle commissioners here today, and especially the hardworking Port of Seattle staff who helped make our 2023 cruise season one of the best and most successful ever. It's an honor to present to you today. I want to also provide some quick comments to recap this season and an update on the crew for the Royal Caribbean International brand that called in Seattle, our celebrity brand in Silver Sea. Um, our crew are our greatest assets and truly our, our internal guests. They're our crew. Uh, this season, our ships, which called at the Port of Seattle, hosted more than 4,000 crew members for each week. I want to offer three exciting stats for our brands from the, this season. Well, upon the return to service, we saw approximately 85% of our crew return after the pandemic. And I can report that the, the par level is at, uh, globally is at par. The average tenure for our crew is nine years or more, and we host many multi-generations on board, uh, which is unique to our culture on board. This, is, this truly showcases our recipe at the Royal Caribbean Group to hire, cultivate, and to promote from within. Finally, for the season, I wanna highlight the groundbreaking blue campaign with, with CBP Washington. Uh, this is an international partnership of global companies dedicated to addressing human trafficking. The Royal Caribbean Group were the first cruise lines to sign on to this important maritime program, and we encouraged all the other lines to join uh, this important campaign. We have now joined forces with Customs of Border Protection and all the major airlines dedicated to address this important issue, and we uh, would like to make this uh, presentation available to everybody um, after this presentation. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. Our next speaker is Violet Vega. Violet? Hi, yes, I'm here. Excellent. Violet, if Hi, you could just say your name and your topic, and then we'll start the clock. Of course. Hello, Commissioners. My name is Violeta Vega. I serve as a program manager at Businesses Ending Slavery and Trafficking, and I'm partners from Cycle 2 of the South King County Community Impact Fund. Okay. Well, like I said, my name is Violeta Vega, and I'm a program manager, and I oversee our program, the Safe Shops Collaborative Program. Like I mentioned, we are partners from the Cycle 2 of the South King County Community Impact Fund, and our program involves helping survivors of human trafficking or people who are vulnerable to experiencing human trafficking obtain jobs in the port industries. And I'm here to say thank you, because we hear from survivors that not having a financial alternative is the reason for why they can't leave their situation of exploitation. So this partnership is extremely valuable to us because it allows us to bridge the gap of unemployment for survivors and those at risk of human trafficking. We are, like I mentioned, incredibly thankful for this partnership and look forward to continually to positively impact our community. So thank you. Awesome, thank you so much, Violeta. Uh, second is, uh, third, excuse me, is Ruth Harmony. Yes, hi, I'm Ruth Harmony. I'm Ruth Harmony, I'm the program manager with CARES of Washington. And I'm here to speak about the South King County Community Impact Fund, of which we are partners from cycles one and two involving construction. This fund is important to the community because it creates access to living wage jobs in industries that historically have not been inclusive of people of color and women. And the fund encourages people in the communities around the port to pursue education, higher wage jobs, and overall stability. The fund also supports equitable inclusion of people leading to more stable families and their local communities. In the first year of this contract, 90% of the clients we serve were women and people of color, with 70% of the people getting jobs being BIPOC, earning between $24 to $31 an hour plus benefits and pension. 
This fund supports the successful stabilization of local individuals as evidenced by the 225 major barriers, such as housing, transportation, legal, medical, and childcare related barriers that have been resolved in the first year of the cycle to award. In the first quarter of the second year, this fund has been the catalyst in care serving 42 people, 40 of which are BIPOC or women, and has been able to address 57 barriers so far. Success story. Donovan is a BIPOC man who started his pre-apprenticeship program in order to become an iron worker. He was houseless at the time and was finishing up the classes offered by his pre-apprenticeship program. Cares of Washington met with him and found out that he had no food, no way to get to and from his program due to lack of funds for gas, and he needed resources for washing his clothes and getting sanitary products. Cares was able to help him with a money card to get groceries and gas and get to and from his program and also sent over various resources near him for free laundromats and food banks. Within a month or so, Donovan has not only been placed in a full-time job in ironwork, but also found more permanent housing and is no longer homeless. Cares of Washington is so proud of this man's accomplishments and is thankful to this fund for making this success possible. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ruth. Uh, next is Adam Powers. Hi, my name is Adam Powers. I'm the executive director of KeyTech Labs. Mr. Commission President, topic? Uh, could you just quickly state the topic? Oh, I'm speaking and talking about the South King County Community Impact Fund and how it supported us. Okay. Again, my name is Adam Powers. I'm the executive director of KeyTech Labs, and our focus is to bring emerging technology to underprivileged areas to help create self-sustainable communities. This fund has been so important for our program around creating green pathways to green jobs, that's solar jobs, that's HVAC, and creating true opportunities for our communities of color, specifically BIPOC youth trying to get into these fields because there are so many different barriers, especially for those that are already coming from disadvantaged communities. There is a lot of funds coming down from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Build Back Better uh, bipartisan deal, um, but we need to make sure those funds and that access comes to communities of color, especially those youth who are looking for those pathways to help change the world and become electricians and solar installers. And this fund was able to allow us to help build and start this green pathway program where some of our students have been working with organizations like Sphere Solar Energy, a BIPOC and black owned solar company here in Pacific Northwest and having those youth not only learn that skill and be on a pathway, but on a pathway that reflects them with working with rainwater harvesting companies like Ali Van Bryce, Sphere Solar Energy, uh, Biofiber Industries, so that these students are getting a clear pathway into industries that not only help change their economic status, but also help and empower the planet and change our uh, climate situation. So that's all I wanted to say. I'm very supportive of this program and hopefully funds can continue to support these different programs and pathways. Thank you, Adam. All right, our next speaker is Nambura Ruhio. I hope I said that right. Yes, you did. Oh, excellent. Good afternoon, uh, commissioners, members of staff and uh, community at large. 
Uh, my name is Nyambura Ruhiombogo. My organization is Siliana Consulting. I'm going to be speaking to the South King County grant and the impact it's making for our community. The grant is not only making an impact, it's making a difference in people's lives. I want to say that I am the consultant supporting the Port of Seattle in uh, capacity building as well as outreach. And I've seen the difference that it's making. From an economic standpoint, uh, the economic recovery standpoint is creating a pipeline of jobs from the BIPOC for the BIPOC community in green jobs, aviation jobs, and maritime industry, as well as construction. This grant is making it possible for people who had not this information to be able to access uh, this information from the port and also from um, understanding more about maritime positions. From an uh, environmental uh, aspect of things, it is making a difference in our communities when we are able to, um, when those grants are deployed into community-based organization and work with the different governments and be able to do different uh, properties and do work that is really making a difference in people's lives. I want to say that as we do this capacity building and outreach work, we have realized that there is a need for this grant to be um, accessed by other cities, more than the six cities that we are supporting. So it would greatly make a difference with that happened. The other thing that we have realized is that it can become sometimes extremely challenging for this community-based organizations to apply for this uh, particular grant. So a difference in how it, the application process takes place would make a difference. Thank you, and I hope that uh, you approve this for us because we need it. Thank you very much. Next is Chris Pearson. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Chris Pearson, and uh, my the topic I'm speaking on is also the South King County Community Impact Fund. Uh, so hello, and thank you for the opportunity to speak today at today's Port Commission meeting. My name is Chris Pearson, and I'm the Director of Operations and Funding at AJAC, a statewide 501c3 nonprofit apprenticeship training intermediary based out of Kent, Washington. AJAC provides apprenticeship and pre-apprenticeship training for the aerospace and advanced manufacturing industries. We are partners from Cycle 2 of the South King County Community Impact Fund, and our project involves aviation and maritime manufacturing. The fund has helped increase our ability to recruit and serve diverse and underrepresented South King County residents in our 10-week Manufacturing Academy pre-apprenticeship program, which offers a solid foundational career pathway into aviation and maritime manufacturing jobs and apprenticeship opportunities across South King County. The fund has been especially helpful as we rebuilt our ability to offer in-person Manufacturing Academy co cohorts after close to three years of providing primarily online training during the pandemic. Now with funding support from the port, we are offering nine in-person cohorts per year across the Kent Industrial Valley at South Seattle College's Georgetown campus, Green River College's Kent Station campus, Bates Technical College, and at the Boys and Girls Club of King County's EX3 Teen Center in Federal Way. We're also beginning to offer regular in-person information sessions at the Airport Job Center for individuals interested in learning more about employment and apprenticeship opportunities in the advanced manufacturing industry. During year one of our Cycle 2 grant, AJAC enrolled over 70 South King County youth and adults in the Manufacturing Academy, uh, with over three-quarters of participants either from BIPOC communities or, or women. We are on pace to meet or exceed our enrollment goals for year two, and are expanding our services to better serve English language learners, 
justice-involved individuals and youth with, with disabilities. So just in closing, we are incredibly grateful for the increased capacity that this fund has provided our organization. Uh, and we thank you again for the opportunity to speak and for your ongoing support. Great, thank you very much. Next, oh man, Angela, I'm really sorry if I butchered this name. Angela Ngasi Diansasala. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Angela Ngangi Diansansala, and I'm the fund developer and data manager at the Congolese Integration Network. And my topic is the South King County Community Impact Fund. Again, my name is Angela Ngangi Diansansala, fund developer and data manager at the Congolese Integration Network. And my topic is South King County Impact Fund. <clears throat> The Congolese Integration Network offers a wraparound case management services to help integrate refugees and immigrants from Central Africa, and our mission is to educate, lead, and usher for a thriving community. Our story with the South King County Community Impact Fund Environmental Grant began when I applied on behalf of the Congolese Community Basketball Team to rejuvenate the Crystal Springs Park in Tukwila. This park, although a hidden gem, remained largely undiscovered by the refugee and immigrant community dwelling in Tukwila. A prevailing reluctance to utilize public spaces within our community prompted us to embark on a mission of change. Our mission was clear and profound. We aimed to revitalize Crystal Springs Park, not only providing our basketball team with a safe and healthy place to play, but also extending an invitation to our fellow refugees and immigrants to partake in the park's beauty. We hope to nurture a sense of belonging and community among ourselves. The success of this impact became evident, leading us to identify an even greater opportunity we initiated a heartwarming family connection project by creating a community garden. Our community members originated from countries where cultivating one's food is a way of life. The, the garden services as is a piece of the community garden is a piece of land enabling us to produce culturally appropriate food that would otherwise remain out of reach for many of us. Through regular cleanups, sessions and planting of culturally significant crops will not only cultivate sustainable okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. And then our last speaker is Santa Thompson. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Santa Thompson. I'm an employment programs manager at World Relief Western Washington and my topic is South King County Community Impact Funding. So the project area is aviation. Uh, World Relief Western Washington is a refugee resettlement agency. We assist newly arrived refugees and immigrants to start their lives here in the US. My department assists with the job search for newly arrived refugees. I'm here to thank the Port of Seattle for the funding opportunity. The fund has opened doors for our newly arrived refugees and immigrants to make a good living wage in the Seattle area in comparison to the employers or companies that's outside the port. Um, so far, we have placed 58 World Relief participants at the SeaTac airport since August 2022. Looking forward to continue receiving the funding to support refugees and immigrants in the near future. Thank you. 
Thank you. Actually, we have one last comment, uh, commentator, uh, Henok Tafara. Your mic is not working. Nope. Now you're on mute. Still on mute. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but we can't wait too long. I think I would encourage you to provide your written comments for the record. If you could just submit them to the clerk's office, we'll make sure that you, whatever you have to say is submitted. Unless you want to try one last time. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're not hearing you. <laughs> um, next time, brother. Um, that, that concludes our signups today. Is there anyone else present on the team's call or present in the room today who didn't sign up who wishes to address the commission? If so, please state and spell your name and state the topic related to the conduct report you wish to speak about for the record. All right, at this time, I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of any written comments received. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Um, we have received one written comment today. This has been distributed to you in advance of this meeting and will become part of the public record. And it does come from Adam Powers, who submitted written comments supporting his spoken comment today. Great. Thank you. Uh, hearing no further public testimony, we will now move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda items covering items 8A, 8B, and 8C. So moved. The motion is made. Can I get a second? Second. Thank you. The motion was made and seconded. Commissioner, please say aye or nay when your name is called for the approval of the consent agenda. Beginning with Commissioner Hawkins. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you, five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent, the consent agenda passes. Moving on. President, President oh, Cho, yes. can I make one? Yes, go ahead. So uh, at 1.30 this afternoon, we'll be dipping out of the meeting, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you for delegating to me the responsibility of representing the commission at a meeting with the Indian Ambassador to the United States. Uh, along with a number of other key trade partners from the region. So I thank you very much for that. And then I'll be proceeding from there to a press conference with uh, Washington Maritime Blue and um, featuring the governor on matters related to the supply chain around offshore wind. So thank you for both those opportunities. Oh, no, you're leading on both of those. You, I think you were invited to those separately. So I think, <laughs> don't thank me. I was trying to give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, Moving on in the agenda, we have two new business items today. Clerk Hart, please read the first item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10A, authorization for the Executive Director to advertise, award, and execute a major public works contract and fund construction for sound installation on places of worship program in the amount not to exceed $3,500,000 of the total program cost of $25,872,000. 
Commissioners, in uh, February of 2020, you passed a motion directing us to accelerate our sound insulation noise program. Earlier this year, you br we briefed you on our progress thus far on this work. Staff are working hard to ensure that the deadlines are being met and that we are doing everything we can as quickly as we can to deliver noise reduction benefits to our communities. This authorization in particular is an exciting step forward as we begin sound insulation on places of worship for the first time. These investments, supported by federal grants, will provide noise reduction for three churches near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The project is scheduled for completion by 2026. Uh, the presenter is uh, Stephen St. Louis, Capital Project Manager, Aviation Project Management. Stephen. Thank you, Executive Director Metric, and good afternoon, Commissioners. I'm Stephen St. Louis, and I have a brief presentation for you requesting construction authorization for the Places of Worship program. Next slide, please. Today, I'm requesting construction authorization for $3.5 million, which will support sound insulating three Places of Worship properties where design is currently underway. This author authorization supports our accelerated schedule. Next slide, please. The accelerated schedule is targeting completion of design quarter one, 2024. Our construction advertisement is anticipated in quarter two of 2024, and construction is anticipated to commence in quarter three with a completion target date of late 2025. Next slide, please. And uh, those few slides were just on the Places of Worship program. I do have a slide here that's a quick uh, update on the status of all of the programs for the uh, sound insulation uh, program. Um, so brief update, single family homes program is nearing completion. I anticipate completing seven single family homes by the end of this year. And we have four potential homes in the queue for 2024. The condominium program is now complete. No other properties have chosen to participate at this time. So all work is completed with the condominium program. And the apartment program, which is the largest of all of our programs, uh, consists of nine complexes with 90% design near completion. We are targeting a quarter one of 2024 advertisement with construction completion targeting quarter four of 2025. Currently all programs are on target to complete before the end of 2026 which was our uh, commission's uh, motion was to complete the entire sound installation program by the end of 2026. And we are on target to, ex uh, to, to beat that. Next slide. And that's all I have uh, for, for today. Um, again, just uh, requesting construction authorization. Great. Thank you very much. Any questions from, for staff at this time from commissioners? Uh, Commissioner Mohammed. Well, first of all, Stefan, thank you for the presentation. And it's so good to know that we're on target to um, have these place of worships completed um, and that so much of the sound installation program is on target. Um, my question is around, um, I know I've brought, brought this issue up a, a se several times. Um, outdated systems. <laughs> I see you got up. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I want to get an update on our sound installations. Those who have asked for repairs, I know we have the Part 150 study happening, and I know that you guys were hiring a new coordinator, and so if we can just get a brief update on where that is at um, and what we're doing as far as collecting data on residents who have shared concerns or have reported that their uh, installation is not either working or is outdated. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, Sarah Cox, the Director of Aviation Environment and Sustainability. Um, with respect uh, to failed noise packages, um, we have hired our consultant for the next cycle of the Part 150 process. Uh, we are finalizing, or we're drafting our scoping with FAA right now, and are targeted to really kick off the program in early 2024. Um, there will be significant amount of community engagement that occurs in 2024, and part of that is um, gaining an understanding and feedback from the community on items like this. And also we will be looking at really what um, all the considerations that we would need to understand to implement this type of program as well um, that range from who how do you define eligibility to funding it's a it's a really broad range of considerations that we want to evaluate to understand the scale um, of implementing this and then eric has yeah some uh good afternoon commissioners eric Schenfeld, senior manager of federal government relations just uh two pieces on the federal side that are relevant to this topic uh, first of all, uh, I think as you well know, this is a, a priority for us on our federal agenda as well as a part of our shared federal agenda through our START program with the six uh, near airport cities. Uh, we've made some real progress there and I wanted to highlight that as part of this conversation. First of all, uh, we do expect that federal funding for potentially replacing uh, quote unquote failed or, or secondary noise packages uh, will be in the Senate version of the FAA bill when it eventually gets moved uh, and then hopefully in the final version of the FAA bill whenever that gets done hopefully by the end of this year. Uh, so I, I think that's important to raise because not only are we looking into uh, what it would mean to have a program to replace insulation but obviously we'd really love for the federal government to be a partner in funding that work if we do move forward with it. So uh, that, would in, that would extend the 80% match that we currently get for first-time insulation. Uh, to an 80% federal match for second time insulation uh, if that legislation passes. In the meantime, in the FY24 appropriations process, uh, we've also been working on uh, language that's in the FY24 transportation uh, appropriations bill that would allow for funding just for the study itself. So uh, would fund airports like ours to study the problem, uh, which could subsidize our work on just trying to understand what is the scope in our region, how many failed packages actually are there, what does it mean to be a failed package, and it would be great again to get uh, federal support for some of those efforts. Studies are painful, um, and <laughs> uh, I have a number of the state representatives and, and state senators who've actually asked, and, and local city council members who've asked me for the addresses of those who are in their district um, and who wanna identify those individuals to engage with them. And I've pushed back a little bit and said, we're, we're doing this part 150 study and we have a strategy around it and we wanna collect the data. Um, the thing that I wanna know is when we do collect the data, what is our intent? Is our intent to 
do we have dollars within the sound installation program to consider doing a, a, rep, a repair or replacement? Do we intend to earmark a, a million dollars for something like that? Is that something you guys are waiting for commission direction on it? That is something that we're trying to understand within the scope. Um, so really we want to be able to assess uh, uh, you know, what is the scale in, 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 in whether it's boundaries, you know, the definition of the program. So we, we know, is it a million dollars? Is it $10 million? And where would those funding mechanisms come from? And that ties into uh, what Eric referenced, that we want to be able, if possible, to utilize federal, federal funding opportunities to be able to install secondary packages. Um, you know, we, we do not have specific addresses um, from individuals. We have heard secondarily that they're that of this issue, and so we want to understand, you know, really what the scope uh, and scale of this is, and um, would it fall under the current eligibility requirements that FAA has for um, first-time insulation packages as well. One thing, Sarah, Sarah, we, Sarah please. Oh, sorry. We Mission, do have yeah. addresses in the sense we have the addresses of those who we did the installation. Yes, for, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. But we have not engaged them to ask. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, uh, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of the the 150 process is really an opportunity for us to define what our noise program is yes. and get the FAA to approve that noise program. Right. Uh, so it actually is a chance to really sort of, with the FAA in partnership, develop. What our, uh, what our investments might be moving yes. forward in the next Part 150 process, yes. right? So I, I think that's key to it. And, and I think, Commissioner, it's, it's really important for us as staff to do that because there, there's no federal definition of failed. There's not even really a, a consensus definition of failed. Is it that it just doesn't provide that 45 decibel internal noise level? Does it have to do with the fact that there might be mold or uh, cracks? So I think even just defining the problem really does take some thoughtfulness before we just sort of go and start spending money. Okay, and then the other question I, ask, uh, I have is around defining that and the scope, what does that take? Does that take going back to those homes? Can you just walk us through that a little bit? That's a part what we're trying to define. You know, is it um, looking at just the manufacturers of the products that were installed? You know, are there some that are, no, are have known deficiencies or is, that's one of the things that we need to pencil out and, and define. Um, or do we take a selective group out, out of the 9,400 um, homes that we have insulated? Or do we do a full-scale um, full assessment? So th that the bounds of what that looks like are what we're trying to define right now. And we'll get that information you're thinking by the end of 2024. Is that what I'm hearing? At the, most likely at the latest. We'll have some internal information um, as we go through the process, but that is our target. Is there one part of that Part 150 study that comes first? Does it rep the possibility of looking at those replacement or, or how, does, is there an order priority? Uh, we will coordinate with FAA to define what those priorities are and we can help push to bump that up towards you know the top you know, initially in the first year we will be conducting um, a lot of data analysis on uh, our 
our flight pass um, noise analysis and then also the community engagement events great well that that's helpful I am looking forward to hearing back at some point what you guys in the FAA yeah. come to a decision on on what's going to be prioritized so it'd be helpful if that information could come back to the Commission for us to consider yeah, um, and then the other thing I, I will say is that I um, I think there's a lot of interest from a number of legislators who would be interested in looking at state funding for this and so if there are is an opportunity where the port could also show some interest in um, paying for some of those repairs and we could do that with an equity lens right considering those who are senior disabled things like that I think we can use our equity index card to prioritize some of the most vulnerable population in our region but I do agree with you guys I think collecting that data knowing who we're talking about who exactly the population is is important I just want to make sure that that comes to us in a timely way yep, but again understand. I really am thankful for the important work that you all do um, and uh, that concludes my questions excellent thank you Commissioner Mohammed Commissioner Calkins so um, thanks for the information and thank you Stephen see you on there too uh, as I was reading through the the materials that were provided to us in advance I, I started to think about um, these particular places of worship and there was a, uh, a little fact that jumped out to me which is that it sounds like three of the six are participating right now seven three of the seven are participating right now and and so maybe provide us a little understanding of why those additional four aren't at this point and and how long uh, do they have until those funds would no longer be available to them Do you want me to take that, Steve, I, or do you want to start I, with it? I can, uh, yeah, I can, I can uh, okay. take that off. So, um, uh, uh, thanks for the question, uh, Commissioner Calkins. Um, so, yeah, we, we started out with seven that were identified as eligible uh, within the noise uh, remedy boundary. And of those seven, uh, two of the places of worship did not apply for the program after uh, extensive outreach. Um, one of the properties did not test eligible. So, that did not meet the threshold um, for, for the FAA guidelines. And then one of the uh, properties, um, they tested eligible, they were moving forward uh, to participate, and then um, there, there seemed to be a conflict within their uh, organization with uh, a regional um, uh, directive versus uh, the local. So they, they wanted to move forward, but they were uh, informed uh, they would not be able to proceed. So that's how we ended up with three. and. Currently, the program has a budget to support all of the seven. So if, if somebody came on board um, uh, before this program uh, completes itself, uh, theoretically, end of 2026, then, then we could would certainly um, move forward with uh, design and, and proceed with uh, the additional properties. It, uh, that notion that, you know, we had 50 or less than 50 percent participation got me to thinking about you know why wouldn't they take this seemingly free money and um you know speculating around uh and based on kind of the state of uh, places of worship generally in our region and the country right now and um post-covid i know there's a lot of uh attendance related issues at some of these churches i i suppose in other places of worship i suppose that part of the dynamic that we're dealing with here is um, that the potential use of these funds is very constrained, 
correct, it must be used for replacing windows, insulation, and that kind of thing. So a church couldn't come back to us and say, or a place of worship couldn't come back to us and say, you know, for the price, our, our building doesn't even appraise for the amount that you're saying that this construction is going to cost, the whole building. Could we take that money and locate to a, a more suitable area for where our particular um, membership now resides, having changed over the years? That uh, would not fall within the, uh, the the boundaries of what the FAA allows for the, uh, the sound installation program. Okay. Not that I want to make this more complicated, but I just I, I imagine it's a very um, constrained set of uses, and yeah. so I can understand why organizations may choose not to participate. Yeah. But it's unfortunate. Yeah, it, uh, especially with the places of worship, it is very constrained for what we can and can't do. Uh, there's even uh, certain offices or certain locations within uh, the places of worship that we can't sound insulate. Um, so it's, it's very. Um, pinpointed to exact locations within these facilities that we're allowed to provide the sound insulation. Okay, well, I appreciate it. And uh, Steve and I have been talking about a business opportunity. There is currently no sound insulation for uh, stained glass windows. So if anyone can invent that, uh, good opportunity for places of worship. <laughs> that is true. Commissioner Feldman. Well, Eric, you stole my joke. Oh, sorry. Um, Apologies. I, I was yeah. going to thank staph for yes. uh, enabling these underserved yes. communities to break through the stained glass window. Oh, good. So uh, I will I, say a number of Hail Marys and apologies. Uh, yeah, so. So. Yes. Good job. <laughs> anyway, um, having said that, um, <laughs> so I, I actually had a question about the data for a moment. Um, so we have the 9,000 some odd known populations. Do we know the packages that those received? The, you know, the brands and all that? Yes, we um, have, through the various contracts, we have records of what manufacturers were installed in the various homes or in other facilities. Right, so I, I would imagine it'll take a lot of time to determine, first of all, what the criteria for failure is, no less verifying with failure occurred. Mm -hmm. But it would be, seems to me, relatively easy and quick to just pull that population. And I'm kind of interested to know how you intend on doing that. And then taking those who raise their hands to assert whether justifiably or not, and then just see if there's any uh, trend in packages that would, if, is there a brand failure? And then by having a population, a, a set to look at then would inform your next steps. So I'm just wondering, I, I could see this being done in the first quarter. What, what is your sense of being able to get to just a broad assessment like that? Uh, sorry, I'm just thinking through. Part of it's just with the timing with the FAA and we, I mean, we want, that's one methodology, one approach and uh, I mean, we want to be able to vet that through with the agency and our consultant team. It's a great, it's a great idea. Um, that would be a quick way to do that. I would expect. Um, I'm just thinking through our contract timing. You know, maybe not first quarter, but quarter two, like that type of high level. But I want to make sure um, that that isn't. Um, 
is it worth we want to evaluate is it is that um, worth the time to do a short and quick or is it worth spending the extra three or so months to get something more detailed that will provide more value for us to make future decisions um, so that's something that we need to weigh well I appreciate you wanting to yeah. coordinate with the FAA yeah. but that means half a year <laughs> you know it, it, does, it does you know it seems to me that this is fundamental data that will have to inform whatever future decision making so the FAA would embrace this as a starting point I don't know how you could get your head around, you know, the size of the problem. That was like the first question. Yeah. How much are we going to ask the feds for? Right. And I would assume if this meets FAA guidelines, um, it would probably be an 80-20 split as normal. So then our financial exposure, we could at least get a handle, of, you know, order of magnitude yeah. idea of for future budgets, what that might look like. So I, I'm, I think, in, in support of Commissioner Mohammed's comments, that. I just want to get some indication of yeah. how big a deal this is, or at least perceived is. We've been talking about, well, nobody's stepped up, or other right. people are supposed to collect these data for us. You're con you now have a, a I, consultant, I, I, yep, and absolutely. so I would just love to know that uh, we would at least have some sense of the population. Yeah, and, and we're, we're hearing, commissioners, that you want, you want us to prioritize this. You want us to really start doing some data collection, and I want to just... Uh, to, to your point, Commissioner, we are obviously very aware, you, you've been around for the longest, that there is a specific window manufacturer now out of business that has been installed in some of these homes that we do believe potentially is where we would focus some attention right away. We know how many of those homes are, uh, and so uh, there are certainly ways to prioritize even just sort of some specific, you know, not having to do all 9,400. But we'll come back to you ASAP with some, some clear next steps, including how this fits into the overall Part 150 process and, and go from there but hearing you loud and clear about the the importance of this to the community yeah absolutely all right thank you very much hearing no further questions for this item is there a motion and a second so moved second great the motion was made and seconded clerk Harp, please call the rule thank you beginning with commissioner Calkins. aye thank you commissioner Fallerman aye thank you commissioner Hoskawa aye thank you commissioner Mohammed aye thank you and commissioner Cho aye Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. Great. The motion passes. All right. Clerk Carp, please read the next item into the record. Thank you. This is agenda item 10B, authorization for the executive director to approve additional design funding to execute the remaining service agreements for professional design and port-related costs for all project elements and improvements necessary to complete design and inclusion of a 1% art program investment for the T91 Uplands development project in the amount of $4,500,000 and a total estimated project cost of $84 million. Commissioners, a lack of maritime and industrial facilities in the City of Seattle is a major barrier to the growth and development of the industry. To that end, we're pleased to be moving forward on the first phase of this long-discussed project to develop the uplands north of Terminal 91 for these purposes. The project has been developed to 60% 60 percent design and additional funding is needed to complete the design permitting and, and other documentation once complete phase one will consist of developing approximately 100, 120,000 square feet of industrial building space and we expect phase two to be able to accommodate nearly 300,000 square feet we're pleased to be bringing this project before you today especially after the city of seattle has made such a strong policy commitment to preserving and supporting industrial lands so the presenters this afternoon are Dave McFadden, Managing Director, Economic Development Division, Carol Lees, Director of Real 
real estate development and economic development. This is the Fond Wynn Capital Project Manager and uh, Waterfront Project Management. So with that, I'll begin with with Dave. Uh, yeah, Fadden. good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. Let's go to the next slide, please. We're pleased to be here uh, and request your support for authorization of design funding to complete the design on our T91 Uplands project. This funding ultimately includes a 1% art program investment, and the amount we're asking from you today is $4.5 million. The total project cost is $84 million. Let's go to the next slide, please. I think you're very familiar with 291. Um, you know, it sits on the north edge of Elliott Bay. Um, and as you can see on the right, the uplands, uh, we're really focused in on phase one today. We will mention phase two as well. Let's go to the next slide. You know, really what we're doing is building for the future. Um, we believe in maritime and think it's vital to our regional economy. It has a vital uh, economic future. And these buildings will help sustain and support maritime industries in the maritime supply chain. As you can see on the green box on the right, we have been actually working to develop P91 in some form or fashion. I'm not going to eat it, I promise. <laughs> uh, we've been working at this for a while. And early attempts just you know, were either misdirected, we thought about creating a biotech campus, or just too comprehensive. Our effort in 2012 just uh, tried to do this all at once in a comprehensive fashion and ran into challenges with the cost of infrastructure and development. In 2016, we redeveloped that. We discovered that we could phase the development in the uplands, and that is where we have been ever since. You know, the context here is industrial property in Ballard Interbay is in short supply. You know, maritime companies face rising rents and high building sales prices, and just an overall lack of options in terms of leasing industrial facilities that can support their livelihood. Uh, I think we can play a role and provide a solution by providing affordable and needed facilities. And as Steve mentioned, you know, I think this really demonstrates support for Seattle's industrial lands. And, you know, my colleague Kira has been involved in the industrial lands conversation since the beginning, and I would like to turn it over to her at this point. Thanks, Dave. Um, yeah, I think this is proof in the pudding that um, the port is putting its agenda to work on the lands that it owns. With respect to the industrial lands policy, the pitch that we made was to our policy leadership was that we are facing gentrification pressure in the commercial sector and uh, that we need to protect our lands for future investment in maritime. And this is a first pass, a speculative development in phase one. Uh, for um, T91 reflects a number of, I think, important values for, uh, for making good on our promises with the industrial lands policy decision. Speculative meaning that we don't have specific tenants identified for the 120,000 square feet of phase one. To that end, our design for uh, this development is focused on the tenants that we understand and know. So our existing tenants have been uh, uh, described and discussed uh, as part of the overall market, and that's led us to make some key design considerations. The, this, build, this property is developed in three buildings, 
uh, two different sizes for maximum flexibility for speculative development, meaning that any number of types of uses could go here that largely fit an industrial category. Um, it's accommodating a great variety of business and business types. We also took the time to investigate what maritime business needs are, and uh, working with Erwin Park, our market analyst, um, we made sure to incorporate the, dis the needs those businesses that are currently looking for space might actually need uh, to operate. Another modification that we've made since the last time we discussed this project with you, um, and as Dave alluded to, is we added 20,000 square feet to what we had initially intended to build, which was 100,000 square feet of property. And that's just reflecting, um, you know, Dave said, uh, you know, industrial property is in short supply. I think that's quite an um, understatement in certain respects. There's almost no new uh, industrial buildings being built in the BINMIC at this time, so, and there's just a lot of interest. So I think uh, it was prudent for us to consider adding uh, to the footprint when we could. Uh, when we talk with Stefan, he'll outline what our entitlements will be under the permit to build. This is just one phase, as Dave mentioned, of a two-phase process. But I think getting a little bit more juice out of that first phase seemed like a prudent approach for us at the time. Um, We've also made additional discoveries as we've been designing with our designer, um, architect McKinsey, that has led us to a number of new infrastructure upgrades that can help make the T91 facility more resilient overall and benefit more than this project. So I think with that, we'll go to the next slide. So um, I'm going to largely turn this over to Stefan at this point to get into the details of our ask today. We are um, at 60% design. Um, we have a SEPA determination, and um, our permit has been submitted and is currently under review. So we're making enormous progress this year and intend to be ready to go in 2024. So you'll see us again in 2024 when we come to ask for authorization for construction. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Stefan. All right. Good afternoon, commissioners, director metric and staff. Um, happy to be here today to talk about this project. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on the major phased development permit uh, that Kira alluded to is under review right now. The large project, um, you know, with the agencies having jurisdiction, there's kind of two questions we need to ask, you know, answer, negotiate, and get approval from them. First is, what are we doing? The major phase development is that what piece? How many square feet? how tall, what kind of uses, and based on all that data, what are the likely impacts we're going to have to traffic, um, uh, transportation, and such. So that's the piece we're going through with them right now. What, in, what improvements are we going to have to make to the surrounding streets and stuff to support this development? And we, once we complete this really agreement with the city, we've laid that out for 15 years. It's contained to the the phase one, phase two that was on a couple slides back. So it's kind of about a 14 acre parcel that we're defining, hey, we can build up to about 400,000 square feet um, plus additional interior space through mezzanines. Um, and what's exciting about that is that part takes time. We've got the SEPA component of it. But once it's done, like I said, it's in place for 15 years and it really you know, sets us up for to pursue opportunities that may come up during that time 
um, and act on them quickly, uh, really having the things in place. Um, so what we're here for today is really to talk about the how piece. How are we going to build out that um, you know, 400,000 square feet? And that's really what's done through the building permit. What kind of, you know, what are you going to build to construct it? You know, 400,000 square feet. It could be one big giant building, you know, or it could be 10 small little chunks. So that's really what we break down of what we're doing for that build out. And in that flexibility, as Kira mentioned, that's how we were initially going to do 100,000. And we realized, no, this phase one needs to be 120,000 because that uh, matched our market analysis. So uh, the major phase development really um, kind of creates that framework that then we can peel off these, these projects um, as the right need and opportunity presents itself. Uh, next slide, please. So we, let's zero in on that how. So here is those, you know, seeing as 120,000 square feet in this phase. Um, next slide, I'll go into a little bit more detail. Um, this is in kind of six acres of the 14 acres that is coming under that permit. But what I want to focus on is improvements that Kira alluded to on um, the infrastructure. There's things obviously we have to do for these three buildings, sewer, um, electrical upgrades, uh, data connectivity and such, um, as well as upgrades to the terminal that just you know, um, haven't been addressed for a long time, such as stormwater. In bringing this project online, well, we also create the potential for the other uh, part of this parcel, as well as properties further down on the terminal. So this investment of doing these three projects, we also really are kind of putting the infrastructure in fabric to be able to do future projects um, in the phase two, as well as some tie-ins from some of the existing buildings. You know, we may be able to remove some pump stations and go to pure gravity-fed uh, sewer once this project is done, for example. Um, so there is a big investment that goes into the ground. Um, you know, we all see the buildings, but that investment in the ground is really uh, the key piece uh, that gives us uh, these other opportunities. Next slide, please. Here's zeroing in a little bit closer on the three buildings that is part of this project. Uh, there's two smaller buildings that are 25,000 square feet um, and a larger one about 70,000 square feet. Now really driven in response to our, our market analysis, the 25,000 square foot buildings um, you know, are looking at tenants between five to 10,000 square feet. Obviously we could have a single tenant, but um, really kind of hitting that 5,000 square foot to 10,000 square foot. Um, and we're exploring some of our great opportunities with uh, sustainability um, and, and looking at mass timber for the, uh, the framing and roofing system on those smaller buildings. The larger building at 68,000 square feet, that's where we're looking at you know, for uh, you know, 20,000 square foot tenants. Um, you could demise down to 10,000. And so that's really, you know, in that estimated 2 million lease income, um, we have huge flexibility, you know. You could have a 10,000 square foot tenant is, in either one of those buildings. Is that 2 million monthly or yearly? Um, enough to. Yearly? Yearly. Um, 2 million a month would have been nice, yes. Um, so that's really the flexibility is a 10,000 tenant could go in either of these buildings, could go in one, um, we can scale down. Um, also kind of related to it is just, you know, on the outside of the slide, um, wayfinding signage across the entire terminal. Uh, the, you know, and that's going to really be done in collaboration with our cruise team. Um, within the parts of this build-out, we are doing some internal uh, protected bike paths, um, and that's really just kind of setting it down for future projects. We would extend to that, um, and so have better mobility um, outside of vehicles within this large terminal. Um, around these buildings is going to be, you know, some outdoor eating areas, uh, a 1% art installation, 
and some of the first trees planted on the terminal that aren't on the perimeter. We're actually going to have some trees and uh, landscaping in and around the buildings. Next slide, please. So this project did go through the sustainability evaluation framework, I guess, I think it was like last, maybe February, we sat in front of you and did that presentation, maybe off by a little bit there. Um, this was one of the first pilot programs um, that really started how to inform um, this process and, and how we integrate things into the buildings. Um, you know, it's, this was as part of the really goals of the project before the sustainability framework, but matches in wealth. We're going to do lead uh, silver for the shell and core. Shell and core just means, like Kara said, we don't have any tenants currently, so um, we can have big empty boxes that tenants still need to be built out. Uh, that's what the shell and core refers to. Um, even though these are warehouse buildings and a lot of times uninsulated, we are going to um, insulate these. Um, the cost to do it and the payback is a fairly short amount of time. Um, and we think it provides better uh, worker comfort in um, industrial buildings, you know, especially with summers getting hotter. Uh, the building's going to, uh, as part of our lead, uh, right off the bat, we're going to have 20% of the um, expected building energy use covered by solar panels. But if you recall from the last slide, the building is fully oriented for solar exposure. Um, all south-facing uh, south roofs, um, you know, already at the right angle, about 44 degrees as well as we've got north-facing clear stories, so we get nice daylight without any uh, thermal gain coming through those. Uh, the dark sky outdoor lighting is really something that's happened across the whole terminal. There's a project to upgrade um, all the uh, on-site lighting on the terminal, and that is the dark sky, uh, which is uh, really trying to minimize impacts on migratory uh, birds, sea life, um, as well as uh, the neighbors looking down into the terminal. Um, the environment preferred materials, uh, you may recall uh, from the um, Fishman's Terminal um, Mink Project, the no red list labels is part of the Living Building Challenge. Now this isn't the Living Building Challenge, so we're not being certified, but we're really trying to take advantage of some of these um, opportunities and other projects within the port to you know, not use these red list materials where possible. And then there's a couple other grades, you know, to, you know, so we can still have easy ability in terms of being able to bid this and get performing products. But really being a leader um, in the industry and creating markets for these project products so the price comes down and utilization on industrial projects becomes more typical. Um, so that's really building on the work at FT and it's a great opportunity in this project. Transportation and equity I think I've addressed and green space, the additional canopy and stuff um, in and around the buildings. Um, and that also was part of our uh, lead credit points uh, that we um, needed. Next slide, please. So this is really just a quick overview of the scope of the whole major phase development and then understanding the build out of really what we're talking about today. And really the whole point of this slide is it just, it's really showing that we're responding to opportunity and that, that we can you know, develop at any time this opportunity is in phase two. Um, and this is really helping to inform the long-term strategic planning for really doing an entire master plan of Terminal 91. Uh, this really kind of sets a backbone for that. Next slide. So the risk, point of this slide is these are the risks that we are managing, not the risk we expect to impact the project. Um, so that's why the probability is fairly low on most of these risks because there's things we're doing at every step of the way um, 
uh, to limit these. Uh, permit reviews, um, your permits uh, just take a fair amount of time, uh, take more time um, kind of year after year as they get more complex, there's more regulatory involvement on energy code and different things. And so uh, we're looking at different opportunities to potentially submit for our permits earlier um, instead of waiting for 90%, really trying to capitalize on getting these things so we can still deliver, um, go to our bid at the same time, even if that process, um, for good reasons, takes longer. Uh, the unforeseen hazardous materials, we've tested the soil, we've built uh, money into our budget um, to account for what it's going to taste to take the haul those off. And so we're pretty clear what we're going to find, and I think we budget appropriately to address it. Um, availability of materials, that's just staying on top of your schedule and your deliverables. External coordination, um, you know, that through the SEPA process, uh, we had, you know, a lot of, you know, we get um, common in, uh, public input as well as the major phase development. Uh, we regularly meet with the NAC, um, informing them along the way. They have opportunity to review our permits before we submit, and we do regular briefings with them. Um, so we're really keeping the public engaged, um, and so none of this should come as a surprise. And then the bid significantly overestimate, um, you know, carrying the, the appropriate risk and really um, asking a lot of our uh, consultants to put good quality drawings together uh, that will get good quality permits, or excuse me, uh, proposals. Next slide. Can I, can I pop in here? Yeah. I'm going to have to uh, depart, but there was a couple of things I just, from um, reading through ahead of time that I just wanted to mention, and, and then I'm going to have to drop them, I can go, but uh, Kira, one question that maybe you could get back to us on is, um, I've noticed over the last couple of years that there are a number of manufacturing industrial properties on Commodore Way that have been vacant for quite some time. And, you know, Executive Director Metric, his first sentence was, there is a lack of industrial space in the bin mech. So I'm wondering, you know, I know one example is not data, but I, I would love to know how current our data is on occupancy rates. And it you, sounds like you've had very yeah. serious conversations with potential tenants. And so you know this intuitively in a way that I am just dipping in. So um, yeah, I've got to, I'm going to have to take a, uh, <laughs> you're going to have to do it as homework. The second part of this, and I think the piece, you know, where the old adage about real estate, it's location, location, location. The reason this property has so much more potential than so many other places, I think, is tied to its shoreline access. And in, in so many ways, the uplands of 1991 feel separated from their peers in a way that I think we mm -hmm. need to mentally break through because it makes them so much more valuable. These aren't just folks potentially manufacturing things that could be used on water. They're manufacturing things that have to then depart by water. I think that's the really, they don't get to be in places where you know they move it by a truck. So potentially finding tenants who are making stuff that is too big or um, you know whether it's, uh, I think about the fact that our pure port down in Tacoma got silverback recently. How do we entice those folks to come back because they're able to produce and then immediately put into the water the, the you know, very high-skilled labor jobs types products that we're trying to entice with this? So I'm sorry to interrupt, but and now yeah, I've got to depart, Kira. But. I, I, so rain check on some of the data. Yes. <clears throat> if I could just really quickly answer globally some of these uh, or 
kind of set up to answer them more completely. Um, when you're talking about vacant buildings, you're looking at economic and functional obsolescence that basically does means that a contemporary business can't necessarily operate in a technologically sophisticated way in an old building that is, you know, kind of past its prime. Those can have a deleterious effect on the overall market. So I will fill you in on more details of the market framework, and we do have contemporary ongoing efforts to make sure we're staying in touch with those market details. And that includes meeting with tenants and prospective businesses. I love what you're saying about um, the shoreline and its separation from the peers, you know, not its buddies, but the actual peers. And not only that, we've got an adjacent rail yard that could be meaningful for our contemporary customers. So we are looking at ways to increase the circulation inferences and really make that opportunity clear. And then on the third issue, how do we entice? Um, I'll be working with our asset management department and Jennifer Maeda in particular, um, who comes to us from uh, the Northwest Seaport Alliance to really lean in on the sales task here and make sure that we're targeting those customers that are best suited for this flexible set of properties for us. So that's the short story. Thank and you. I'm sorry more. for the interruption. No, good questions. Yeah, sorry, we'd love to talk more about that because those are really good questions and um, we've got a lot of data um, and background for why we're doing what we are doing. Um, let's see, pivoting back to, so schedule, obviously we have just begun uh, quarter four of 2023. Um, uh, let see, on the lead-in we noted that um, just back at the beginning of September we received our 60% review, review set and our uh, beginning this week on that move towards 90%, which we'll finish up in, near the end of the year. Uh, we'll be back for hopefully commission construction, um, approval authorization, probably middle of uh, quarter two, uh, with construction starting near the end of 2024, beginning of 2025. Next slide, please. So just a quick review of this asks the current uh, cost estimate for the project total project, 84 million. Uh, previous authorizations were for uh, 4.3, which pretty much brought us to this point. Uh, current authorization, another 4.5, which does include uh, the full um, allotment for 1% for the art. Um, and our remaining authorization after that would be about $75 million. Next slide. So slide we're all getting used to seeing. Um, so. You know, in this, we're about midway through uh, four authorization in terms of um, Scott, uh, you know, cost, accuracy, as well as project status. Um, and I'd say, really, after a little more analysis, you know, the cost is a piece that probably the next two months is a piece that we really is going to increase uncertainty um, as, you know, we now have enough detail to kind of get better cost estimating on the project and the scope. Final slide, please. All right. Thank you very much. Any questions? Commissioner Hasegawa. Uh, slide eight, please. Drug Sky Compliance. Um, I'm wondering if there, I'm understanding why, why we do that. Yeah. Like you mentioned uh, mitigating impacts on neighbors versus sea life. Do we have official goals around this in our 
answer it quickly is no. Um, our real estate strategic plan looked at the properties and some development options and opportunities. Um, it didn't dive into how we would provide this sustainability factor to it, but we have institutionalized that, you know, in all our capital projects. So that's a good idea. You know, I, I'd only add in the context here is this is an ongoing important issue to the DAC. I'm asking because I actually can't recall when last time Dark Sky Compliance has actually been specifically called out or presentation on one of our objects. And so I wonder why it's showing up here that I'm hearing you say that it's actually something that we do for all of us. I'd ask for a little help here, but I do believe that part of the sustainable evaluation framework discussion. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where I was going to go with We look for that. opportunities, and this is one of the things that we felt we could provide with this project. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, all right, and then slide ten. Can you just elaborate a little bit, please, on um, on external coordination? You've identified, um, you know, engaging with stakeholders as um, medium probability with a we know some of the challenges that are facing the business community in that area. Can you expand a little bit on I will, yeah. So, the, so this is a risk, a formal risk analysis that we do, and you saw it again with the Fisherman's Terminal projects. Here, what we're alluding to, you know, as we get farther along in um, design of this project and closer to construction authorization. Schedule starts to be a material aspect of cost escalation. So if we were to have any delay for any reason, that would impact the cost of the project. So as we move forward from today, um, you're going to find us much more uh, focused on keeping an acute schedule. It's going to play into our sales process as well. The idea is that we finish the project, we finish building it, and we immediately move tenants into it. We can't even have those formal conversations until we have a fully designed and approved project and we have a bid set and we've approved the bids and we know what we're going to be doing and when it's going to materially exist. So that's why you see um, the impact is high for, say, a um, third party to come in and make a comment that causes us to make a significant design adjustment. Um, you know, we do hear from folks who want to see improvements around 1991, who are uh, interested in knowing what our plans are around bypass and impacts on business owners during gentrification, as you mentioned in your presentation. Um, what ideas do we have around community engagement? question. I, I'll take a stab at that first. I think the engagement has started and it's well down the road. Um, we have actually been working on this concept for about the last seven years and so I've probably included a dozen meetings with the NAC but with parallel meetings with the Queen Anne Council, the uh, Magnolia Council. The tenants. Uh, we've reached out to tenants. Um, that will continue. That will continue, but I, I feel good about the level of outreach and engagement we've done thus far, and especially as we go actually into construction, there will be more for sure. 
And then I am wondering if um, anybody has already been or we anticipate any tenant will be displaced with this project. No, I think that we've got folks time. we have in place and we've taken the time to meet with every tenant out there to make sure they're aware of the opportunity if they want to start engaging with us to move into some spiffy new space Very good. in 2025. Anything else to add? Thank you. Thank you. Great. Hearing no further questions or comments. Thanks for the project, uh, and it's been fun mm -hmm. watching it through sustainable valuation framework discussions. It seems like you've exceeded what you proposed before us, because I, I seem to recall you weren't going to insulate even. Yes. So, so pleasant surprise. Yeah, we, 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 I mean, we're sincere about looking for opportunities throughout the design process, and we've had our sustainability uh, folks engaged around the design table. And you know, we often will look at these cost differentials, Stefan and myself, and you know, look, what could we add? That installation was one that was easy to add. It was not a huge cost differential. I don't want to work in an uninsulated warehouse, so. I, mean, I think the decision. way you explained it to us would be like a tenant improvement, and they would decide. But it seems like once you have an empty building, you just blow it in, and yep. probably would be a lot easier to do it while it's empty. But that was that was a pleasant surprise. The the dark skies issue. I think over the water, there is obligations to like have barn doors and things like that to keep the light from spilling into exactly. forage fish habitat and things like that. But it's great as a community mitigation to think about that as well. So I, I appreciate that and look forward to seeing further conversations on that other, otherwise. The um, uh, risk factors that you mentioned didn't include this being a liquefaction and flood zone. No. And um, it's probably the most silly putty soils we've got. And I'm just yes. wondering, you know, until you start doing significant, you know, drilling, we, we ran into the problem, obviously, in Fisherman's Terminal. And so I know you've been sampling the soils for contamination. Are you going down to hard stuff? Do we really know how deep our foundations need to be? We, we have yeah. significant obligations under our permit requirements to upgrade the facility to make sure that it meets seismic code. Um, and we are deeply aware of the soil conditions. I don't know, maybe you want to give a little more yeah. context there. Yeah, and in fact, I've got a meeting at 3 o'clock to uh, <laughs> do a little deep dive uh, with our internal um, structural engineering and the consultant team. Um, and so, you know, there, there's two different solutions to deal with the liquefaction. You can either try to do a soil improvement or you can just I'm sorry, can we, drive the Can pump. we make this brief? I, I, I think I'm you just, can brief, brief him later, but these I'm are just asking about this uncertainty in the budget. Yeah, so, so you, you didn't list it as a risk factor. It seems to me to be a potentially big variable. Yeah, it's, it's really just a, it's a design issue. So we've identified uh, what needs to be addressed. There's two solutions. Okay. Uh, we have a deep pile solution, which will full, you know, fully bear and therefore completely mitigates the impact from liquefaction. All right, and then, and then finally, um, in light of the contemporary need question about this stuff, I just saw in the paper like Amazon overbuilt warehousing terribly, and they're now looking to uh, lease it at a song. Um, and also, I just think that the other mitigation with the NAC community, it's a big difference if this facility is being used as a warehouse versus then a light industrial when it comes to truck traffic. And I'm just wondering, in, in your consultations with NAC, I see on the panel either could occur, 
but I would expect you would hear different feedback from the community. Well, we've shared with them our traffic analysis, which shows not any significant impact to tra additional traffic with the current scheme that we've developed, whether it's light industrial or warehousing. You know, obviously we'll know more when there are tenants, but we're assured by the representations made by our traffic consultant that we're in good shape there. Really, the traffic is cruise at T91. And you're not concerned about Amazon vacating property? Right? I am not at all concerened about that. But you know, the SEPA addressed the worst case scenario, you know, so that, that what piece of the major phase development is, okay, if we build out a 400,000 square feet and we have the highest truck traffic, what is the impact? Um, and so that is what was the background into that determination of not sending And that's what we shared with the community? Yes. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? second? Excellent. The motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Yes, just a note with Commissioner Hasegawa making that motion. For the vote, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. He's absent. I'm sorry. Calkins <laughs> <laughs> has left the building. So it was an early morning. <laughs> Commissioner Felamon. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. The motion passes. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate Thank you the so presentation. Much. Yeah. Okay. Moving to item eleven, presentations and staff reports. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce it. Thank you. This is Agenda Item Eleven A, South King County Community Impact Fund Annual Report and Evaluation. Commissioners, in November of 2021, you passed an order directing a program evaluation of the impact of the South King County Community Impact Fund. This report will highlight the program's success and provide rich details about the different ways that the fund has been able to create positive benefits to the near airport community. Uh, since the program was authorized in 2019, the port has supported investments to communities most in need of economic recovery from a COVID pandemic, funded environmental programs, supported small businesses, bolstered workforce development efforts, and, and much more. I do want to note that uh, a more formal proposal for next steps in the South King County Fund will, will be brought to a future commission public meeting. And so what you'll hear today is about our work to date in that assessment. And so we have a number of speakers today, but I think I'm going to turn it over to uh, uh, Senior Director for Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, Pukta Gesar, uh, to, to take it from here and then uh, to introduce the the staff and then the team as well. Thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Good afternoon, Executive Director Metric. My name is Bukda Deysar, and I'm the Senior Director of Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Is this working? Is it on? Oh, it's not on. It's not on. <laughs> because I didn't push the button. <laughs> you know, actually, I think that that's a good reminder for everybody. We've had um, some mics not coming on, so let's just make sure that we're diligent about that. Thank you. All right. Um, Today, I am both Bukta and Pierce. Pierce is out. He uh, is unfortunately had a medical emergency, and, but I think he might be actually listening to the presentation, but I'm speaking on behalf of both of our departments. Um, I have the honor today to bring to you the highlights of South King County Fund's achievements for the last four and a half years. And I'm here with my colleagues, Guadalupe Torres, from the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and Elaise Aden from the External Relations Department. 
Um, and I would like to uh, begin by acknowledging that this work has been incredible um, for multiple reasons, but I think one of the most important core, core, core elements of South King County Fund is that it's a deep partnership between the Office of Equity and External Relations, that we have really collaborated to shape this um, program, its outreach, its model, the barriers, the solutions together every step of the way. Um, and I think that actually presents it as a, as a best practice and model for many of our programming in the organization. Uh, today, you're going to hear about the highlights of the environmental program, highlights of uh, the economic recovery program, and also about an additional program that we added because of COVID, which is our women and minority-owned businesses um, funding in this program. Um, next slide, please. Um, uh, Guadalupe Torres and Elaise Aiden are going to give you some financial updates. And today, we are very lucky to have some re representatives from community-based organizations who've been funded here with us. Um, they're going to join us here at the table and share with you some incredible stories. Um, and we'll talk about some of the process improvement that we've made along the way and talk with you about some of the findings from the evaluation and impact assessment and then respond to any questions that you might have. Um, next slide, please. We're gonna come back to the work that actually resulted in this mission and vision. As you can see, this mission is incredibly powerful. Um, we hired an evaluator who worked with us and held multiple community sessions, and we engaged internal um, uh, port employees and externally community leaders to help shape the uh, future mission and vision of South King County Fund. Uh, I just want to highlight a couple of elements of this mission that makes it really important. Um, one being that we're going to focus on creating more and more pathways to quality and living wage jobs. Um, as you know, you know, through the Workforce Development Program and other programs at the port, we have multiple areas where we're supporting people to get into entry-level jobs. But through South King County Fund, we're really actually looking at pathways that scale up and provide the ability for people to make living wage while living in King County. Um, and uh, we are, uh, I think another element that's really important in our mission and vision is that the community's voice is really centered along all of our work and that the vision is that we're a model for partnership in addressing structural inequities, creating thriving communities, and advances equity for all. Next slide, please. All right, just a, a very brief overview before I hand it over to my partners today is that, um, as I mentioned, the program fund has three elements. 70% of the dollars that we have invested so far have been focused in economic recovery, 
20% in environmental and 10% in WIMBY. Uh, this is really important, the 10% that we've invested in WIMBYs, because this was actually not part of the original motion. It was not an area that we were going to work in. But uh, we actually launched South King County Fund shortly before the impact of COVID hit in our communities. And we saw pretty quickly that women and minority-owned businesses were hit so hard that building the capacity of these small businesses was really critical. So so we worked very closely with uh, Senior Director McFadden and Director Mian Rice to shape uh, this program, and you'll hear uh, some highlights about this work. Um, another thing that I want to highlight is that economic recovery and WIMBY dollars do not require a match because they fall under our economic uh, development activities, but the environmental segment of South King County Fund is the only one that requires a match, which after years of incredible work in external relations and government relations teams, we have been able to reduce the three to one match to two to one this year. Um, so uh, I'm going to turn it over to Guadalupe Torres, who's going to give you an overview of economic recovery programs. Yes, I will do that. Hi, commissioners. Good afternoon. Um, in this slide, we're really addressing where is that $10 million? Where did it land? So you'll see the columns outlining the programs the project number awarded, the amount allocated, and then the cash dispersed. And the reason why the cash dispersed um, column and the uh, amount allocated is different is because we implemented um, multi-year contracts. So multi-year contracts make it such that we are only uh, paying or dispersing for that specific year, knowing that future payments will be made um, and then just looking at where has this money been invested, we have 5.2 million invested in 28 economic recovery projects, 930,000 for 37 projects in environmental, and 760,000 for seven projects in the Wimby area. And um, if I just pause for a second and say that is 62 projects. Um, seven, seven, uh, $7.3 million, that is phenomenal. That really builds the roots that you can cultivate and grow from. The next line item is capacity building, and you heard from our consultant, Celiana. It was a competitive RFP process, and this funding is for three years. And what essentially, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but what, it, what it's doing is building engagement, communication with our communities, and really um, having a stronger alliance with the grassroots community. Um, the fourth item is cycle four, which we spoke is happening now. So with environmental, um, they are currently have an open RFP and that due date is October 30th. So we're really trying to get the word out about, please, you know, bring your project ideas to us. 
and for economic recovery, we are currently under we are currently reviewing. There is a review team that is assessing the applications. And I wanted to share a little bit about that review process because I think it is unique and it is powerful. So in that review team, it's internal and external. So from the port, we have OEDI, workforce development, CPO, and this year we have a maritime at the table. We also have incredible experts who, from South King County, community members who are embedded in the community as well as have incredible workforce development experience. So those subject matter experts are at that table. That's um, proving to be not only powerful in the analysis of the applications, but the, the value add is that they're helping us identify places where we can make improvements. And, um, and I will tell you that it's not really easy. It's, uh, it's a little bumpy. And we have some conflict. And we have partners at the table addressing problematic areas. But we also have them there talking about the solutions. What can we do? So um, I think it's an incredible, phenomenal place for learning. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, an economic recovery, as you know, is the largest portion of the fund. It's 70%, and it really focuses on workforce development and workforce training programs. And uh, specific, this is important, specific to aviation, maritime construction, and green jobs. And um, I think it's important to call out that this, I know we've had a reference to call this grants, but this program is, is a contract. This is a service agreement. So there are tasks, there are deliverables, milestones uh, built into this contract. And so there's a, it, it's a pretty rigorous system that's in place. And, and we have reasonable um, adaptability with our partners because particularly because many of these are launching projects during COVID. And so we need to be reasonable in our approach. Um, our funding options, we learned from cycle one that we needed a little more adaptability. So uh, in cycle one, we funded 10 programs, contracted with 10 partners for $100,000 each. But what we heard back was it would be great if there was additional um, longevity to this, to this contract. So we made that pivot, and we now see that 95% of our applicants are opting for multi-year agreements. Um, from those applicants, the vast majority, 95%, are nonprofits. Also, this is open to chambers of commerce and um, community groups who don't have that certification but that have a really wonderful idea and have a fiscal sponsor, so somebody who does have the 501c3 certification can work with the community group, so they can apply. Uh, next slide, please. This is a dashboard of the overall economic recovery uh, program. So we see that in cycle one, the 10, uh, funded partners in cycle 212 and cycle 36 for a total of 28. Um, and I think that we should note 
that uh, there was a decline in cycle three, and we, we um, have learned that that is at least in part because when you offer um, multi-year contracts, there, that eliminates the need of having to go back every year, having to go back every year, so we, we will see a natural decline. Um, and we'll learn more about that as we, as we um, move forward in this process. And I'm, I'm so proud to like pause and, and want to give applause to the names that are up there. It's a beautiful portfolio. Um, why is it so beautiful and powerful is number one, ethnically diverse captures the beauty of South King County, the cultures and the communities. It is very much reflected there. The second is that there is um, variance in size of the organizations that we're partnering with. So we see the big powerhouses that are know this stuff and they're a solid partner, but we also see reflected mid-size nonprofits and very small nonprofits who are innovative in their approach and who um, need investment in their brilliant ideas. So we see that, um, that added to this portfolio. And then another aspect is that we have the port uh, specific areas of construction, maritime, green jobs, and aviation well represented in this portfolio. So uh, it, it speaks, it's to be applauded, and it's, it's awesome. It also could be better. And um, we have recognized that we do not have solid representation from the native Hawaiian Pacific Island Asian community. That needs to be, they need to be present. Representation needs to happen and it matters, as well as the native and tribal peoples. That is um, an important goal moving forward and we are making and building our outreach so that it's stronger. Uh, next slide, please. So this brings us to our partners and just, you heard some of the data, you heard some of the passion come through in the public comments. And today I, I have with me um, two wonderful representatives from the Latino Civic Alliance to talk about their uh, incredible project that has um, in one year placed 32 pr apprenticeships in construction and aviation. So um, please welcome Marie Bravo and Jackie Lomelli. And I'm just gonna scoot over here and let them talk a little bit about their, their organization. Hello com commissioners, thank you for having us here today. I am Marie Bravo, the Director of Resource Development and Building Future Industry Leaders Program. Uh, Building Future Industry Leaders, BIFL in short, is a workforce development program of the Latino Civic Alliance. Latino Civic Alliance is a statewide nonprofit that works with the marginalized community advocating for equality and economic security. BIFL is one of the Latino Civic Alliance programs that aims to remove barriers and, and help participants obtain better than average wages and benefits. We have established a successful partnership with pre-apprenticeship apprenticeship and employers. We work with participants and provide them with essential and trade skills, reskill and upskill, and provide supportive and wraparound services and opportunities. We provide classes, workshops, and house ready to hire events. 
Last February, we participated in one of the community visioning sessions regarding the fund. It was good to work with the port team directly to share our vision of the fund and what it could be. Investing in this program will help the community and our youth and pay off in the long run. I will now introduce you to Jack Lomelli, our uh, fantastic workforce coordinator. Thank you, Mary. Hello, commissioners. Uh, my name is Jackie Lomelli, and I am the BIFO program coordinator for the Latino Civic Alliance. I am more than honored and grateful to work with the Latino community. For Nina Martinez for believing in me that I could do this job. I am grateful to have Marie Bravo as my supervisor because without her support and knowledge, I would not have learned as much and reached as many people as I have. I am also grateful to the community for trusting me and believing that I could do the, that I could help them find better opportunities, sorry. For trusting me and believing that I can help them find better opportunities for the youth and the parents who want to succeed and they don't know where to start. I am also proud of the many women participating in our program, breaking the stereotypes. Right now with the economy, things are hard, and in most Latino households, both parents have to work to keep them afloat. I myself used to work uh, for a fast food for 15 years, and I know the struggle. Um, that's why it's in my best interest to provide them the help and the guidance that they need in the workforce industry, or just even help them find better paying jobs with benefits, such as medical insurance, dental, 401k. Thank you. Yes, and one of the, um, I think one of the, the byproducts, a beautiful value add to this project is to see the growth of our partners and their uh, ability to execute this job so well and to grow and inspire, inspire me and inspire others. So I think that um, as they build and grow in their confidence and their expertise, they not only better their organizations, but they better us because we are building stronger alliances with them. If I could have the next slide, please. So you heard a little bit about the qualitative outcomes and the impact that this is truly changing lives at a critical point. Uh, this is COVID, COVID impact. This happened, the timeliness was so um, important to make this wise investment in this decision. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about not only the qualitative, but the quantitative, the outcomes. We have good outcomes to share. And so we know from economic recovery, the 28 projects, we know that there's 130 uh, pre-apprenticeship placements, 528 job placements, 52 new business partners for the port, and that the starting salary is between 1905 and $34 an hour. And as an example, TSA agents start at $25 an hour, ramp agents $22,000 sign-on bonus, waste treatment uh, utility workers $26,32, and pre-apprenticeship placements, we've reported many at $31 to $34 an hour. So. Um, that's a pretty powerful pause to say good investment at the right time with the right partners. Um, next slide, please. So um, the third piece of the pie 
is the Women Minority Business Enterprise and my port colleague, uh, Mian Rice, Director of Diversity and Contracting is here to take questions, but in the um, desire to move, keep things along, I will present his slide, I hope I do justice. Um, there are several projects that, were, that we invested in as a port, and these were really critical to small businesses. So the first is with Highline College Small Business Development Center. And as you can see, it, had a, it has a focus on mentorship and training. And that's a theme you'll see throughout. We really need that mentorship of solid businesses bringing on and um, inspiring and, and we're being thought partners for new entrepreneurs. So the second project is Advanced Port Gen, where we are bringing um, Wimby um, business owners together to learn about the con contracting process, not only with the port, the city, the state, and federal contracting opportunities. That's a field that is, can be overwhelming. Uh, so they really need the kind of navigation skills and the ability to know what kind of credentialing they ne is necessary to have strong, um, submit a strong application for any of these projects. And the third is the Business Accelerator Mentorship Program, and that is really connecting business owners, entrepreneurs, with people and business owners who have kind of weathered the storm, who have been able to navigate through this very difficult time. So having thought partnership, having somebody um, walk with you along in this scary journey is is important and we've had 33 cohorts participate as well as 200 businesses in the um, advanced port gen work series so very uh, powerful and beautiful outcomes there as well uh, next slide please And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Elaise, um, to speak to the environmental piece. Great, thank you, Guadalupe. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I'm gonna be talking a little bit about the environmental grants program. Um, so this uh, project, is, uh, our projects have to have a public improvement. Um, so projects can be funded up to $20,000 per year. Um, multi-year projects are available for three years for up to 60,000. Um, these multi-year projects really support the sustainability of longer-term projects that, that are, you know, such as community gardens. Um, we do, um, the public improvements can include community gardens, art installation, equipment in, installed in parks, park restoration efforts, um, and tree planting. Next slide, please. So on this slide, um, this is our cycle two projects that were funded. Um, we had 18 projects funded during our cycle two. Um, and because this is a public improvement, I've kind of laid it out with the different cities that have been funded um, and organizations working in those cities. And I just kind of want to call out a couple of them here. Um, in Burien, we have Toro Cycling Club. Uh, they developed a permanent bicycle skills training and signage um, at the Burien Community Center. Um, they've also partnered closely with the city of Burien to store those bicycles so that the uh, uh, Latino community that they've been targeting can practice riding bikes um, and build out their uh, bicycle skills. 
Um, and then in federal way, we have African Young Dreamers Empowerment. This is a multi-year fund. Um, they are working with, it, it is a youth-led organization, um, and they're working with black and African uh, youth um, to learn more about park restoration skills and uh, pathways to green jobs. Um, we were fortunate uh, this past symposium to have some of the youth speakers um, engage with our uh, participants. Next slide. And so for this last cycle three, we funded five projects. Um, and as Guadalupe had mentioned, we did see that decline partly due to the multi-year funding um, and being able to fund 18 organizations in cycle two. Um, so we have the Congolese Integration Network. Um, they are conducting park cleanups and building out a community garden to represent their cultural uh, diversity um, and really uh, uh, planting culturally relevant food into Quilla. We've got Friends of Normandy Park. They are working to do park restoration at NIST Park. Um, they are helping to build out signage for the park and uh, using interpreters and um, uh, translated materials to get more diverse communities out into those parks. We've got Key Tech Labs. They are uh, building out their second phase of the solar uh, equipment set up at New Start Community Garden. Um, and this is a really exciting project um, and, and they were featured also at our State of the Port event. Um, and then we've got New Start Community Garden. They're building out a patio um, to help uh, attract more folks to the garden, um, as well as uh, providing classes and training to the public for free um, in terms of what pollinators are uh, doing in the garden, um, and then also offering food classes. And the last one here is the Valley Kangaroo Rugby Club. Um, they're working uh, with youth and young adult players to make uh, the park at Ryan, uh, Pat Ryan Field. Uh, more accessible for rugby players. They're also putting up signage um, in different languages to have folks learn more about um, rugby. And um, they're also planting trees. So those are some of the highlighted uh, projects in cycle three. Um, and uh, we do have a total of 37 projects that have been funded to date. Next slide, please. So now I'd like to turn it over to Armai Ashete. Uh, he is the uh, executive director for Serve Ethiopians. He's been a, an incredible partner to work with and was funded uh, for a multi-year grant in cycle two. Um, and I'd love to have uh, Armai share a little bit about the work you've been doing. Hello, commissioners. Uh, it's great to be here and thank you for having me. I am the co-founder and executive director of Serve Ethiopians Washington. Our mission is to serve and empower uh, immigrant Ethiopian and other East African immigrant communities in uh, King County. Uh, we are based in Sitak and we mainly serve immigrants and refugees who speak uh, Amharic, Romo, Tigray, and other Ethiopian language. Our organization was established during the COVID pandemic uh, to support our community who have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Since the establishment, we have been supporting our community through different services like rental assistance, uh, basic needs for children like diaper, uh, COVID health literacy. Uh, and also we partner with uh, City of Seattle in different projects like environmental justice, uh, parks and urban forest restoration and uh, food assistance for seniors. We work with uh, Seattle Foundation on voter education and registration. Uh, 
partnering with uh, King County Elections in the cities of Sitak and Tequila. Uh, we partnered with the Port of Seattle South King County Community Impact Fund Environmental Grant Fund in mid-22. Uh, it's a multi-year urban forest restoration project happening at Engel Lake Park in the city of Sitak. Through this project in the first year cycle, uh, we conducted over five community outreach on resp responsibilities of parks and facilities, recyclers and garbage sorting, uh, organized monthly park and trail cleanup by engaging our community volunteers. Uh, we recruited and trained five volunteers towards age 16 to 24 in collaboration with the Fortera Stewards program, the Stewards uh, lead the different restoration events. Uh, we organized five uh, invasive removal events and planted 200 native trees and shrubs in collaboration with the city of Sita Green Cities Partnership and Fortera last year on Green Sitak Day. And also uh, purchased and installed two recycled garbage bins in the urban forest in Angle Lake Park in collaboration with the city of Sitak Parks and Recreation. In addition, we translated and installed signage on environmental protection and safety precautions in top four languages spoken in the city of Sitak, Amharic, Somali, Spanish, and Vietnam language. And one of the most significant events we hosted occurred on September 10, when we, uh, 22, when we prepared the urban forest area for Green Sitak Day planting event. During this event, 31 community volunteers participated and officials from the Port of Seattle, along with other community partners, including Port Commissioner Hamdi Mohammed, visited our sites and witnessed our restoration activities. Uh, we sincerely appreciate Commissioner Hamdi's site visit and encouragement on that day. Our restoration events with Angle Lake Park and Trail have been instrumentally preserving valuable green space for everyone to enjoy and have engaged our community members in environmental stewardship activities. To date, over 95 volunteers have participated in various events, and we are grateful for the support, uh, for the support we received and for our partnership with the Port of Seattle. This project has also paved the way for collaboration and partnership on other initiatives with the port. We are also partnering with the port's economic recovery program on recruiting and enrolling immigrant and refuge uh, airport taxi and rideshare drivers into the aviation maintenance technology program in partnership with port jobs. Uh, additionally, we are assisting the port in conducting a survey among airport taxi drivers. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Armai. Um, just seeing all the great work that Serb Ethiopians has, has been able to accomplish and just the deepened relationship that we've built out um, um, and the access that, that we've been able to, to have with other port opportunities. So um, next slide, please. So for this slide, I wanted to share some of our outcomes. Um, as I mentioned, we've funded 37 projects. Um, so far with the reports that we have coming in, um, both six months and annually, we have uh, had about 654 trees planted. Um, we'll get an update on these numbers as well in Q1. Um, and then we've got about uh, 3,000 hours worth of volunteer time. Uh, educational and training hours are about 3,200. 
And then as Ermai had mentioned too with our Green Cities uh, partnership, um, we came to the commission last uh, spring, last year actually, uh, in springtime to kind of share that contract and update uh, of all the great work that Fortier was able to do in building out the Green City uh, plan with SeaTac, Gearing, and Des Moines, um, and all the forest stewards that have been able to um, uh, be paid to also uh, plant trees, learn about restoration work. Um, they had about 2,765 trees planted between the three cities. Um, and then a little over 2,000 uh, volunteer hours. So that was about a three-year contract, and, and it was really impressive. And now the, the three cities have, um, are adopting their, their Green City plan. So it's really great. Next slide, please. Great. I'll turn it over to Guadalupe. Yeah. So it's an incredible program at the right time that can always be better. And so some of the improvements that have been made are, are really great improvements. One being the multi-year, we know that it provides sustainability and security. Um, the second is that community reviewers piece where we uh, invite them to be present at the table for the entirety of the conversation and the decision making. The third is investment funds. This one's a biggie. We were able to work with CPO, um, they were supportive of this, to move 25% uh, of the annual funds, which would normally be uh, distributed upon receipt of a six month um, progress report. We've moved that to the beginning of the contract. And so that's important, not only for um, investment monies, for innovation and new ideas, but it also sends, a, a, I believe, a message of trust and confidence in this idea. So that's an important piece. We've implemented consistent RFP release dates so that our communities can know this is when this happens, this is consistent, this is when this RFP opens up and we can communicate that message. We've increased our number of informational and technical sessions because we've heard community um, and are responding to that. We've also um, made sure to include the language piece so that our RFP announcements and our press releases are being distributed in multi, multilingual communities. Uh, we can, we're gonna make that um, more growth in that area, but that is what we're doing currently. And then um, the last, bullet item is an important one and I'm gonna let Elaine speak to that because it, it really did involve a lot of um, contribution from the port in making an important policy change. Thank you, Guadalupe. Um, and so as, as Bukta had mentioned, um, this past uh, legislative session we were able to drive a great policy change um, bringing down that three to one match uh, requirement for environmental grants um, down to two to one. Uh, cross our fingers, it just goes away completely, but um, right now we're at two to one, which is just really incredible. Thank you to our community partners who helped advocate. Um, I know Commissioner Mohammed, you also supported that, and so thank you for your advocacy and leadership, uh, as well as our external relations and government relations team. And so essentially for every dollar that we uh, provide through the environmental grants, uh, the former requirement was that we had to have three uh, times that amount in value. Um, these match dollars can come from uh, educational hours, volunteer hours. Um, they can also come from the v value of trees planted. 
um, and any contact hours uh, that, that uh, organizations have with the larger public. Um, and so for smaller organizations, it could be very difficult to meet that three to one. So right now for this cycle four, we're able to have that two to one match um, and then we'll be working with the organizations uh, who have been funded multi-year to um, adjust their budget and match as well. So really, really exciting um, to, to be able to have that. Next slide, please. So in this slide, I'll, I'll touch on our community capacity building consultant that we brought on last year. Um, the, uh, this contract supports a $400,000 community capacity building for uh, the next three years. And that essentially means how do we support our current uh, funded organizations and how do we drive more organizations to learn not only just about the port, but about the fund in general. Um, and so the uh, other piece of this uh, uh, consultant work um, consists of helping us b deepen and strengthen our relationships with our local city partners um, and King County um, and building out those civic engagement opportunities where we do provide um, updates on projects funded in, the, in their jurisdictions, um, working closer with our parks and rec team, uh, departments and as well as our economic development departments in these uh, South King County cities. Um, they'll also be uh, continuing and expanding on our community liaison program. To date, we've had about 12 liaisons over the last three years. Um, and then they also provide the support for our community reviewers that uh, Guadalupe had mentioned. So we have about two community reviewers um, during our interview process every year. Um, and then they are able to get paid through um, our consultant. And then really telling those authentic uh, stories from, from these organizations, capturing the great work that they're doing, um, supporting any reporting needs that an organization might have, um, and then those networking opportunities to see where there's uh, potential for partnership. Um, and then as well as uh, driving folks to our info sessions and events. Um, they are also, were really critical for our, our um, amazing environmental job symposium we had this past June. Um, we were able to double the attendees from the previous year, so we had about 130 folks. Um, Commissioner Fellman, thank you for your participation and enthusiasm um, at, at the symposium. And it was really great to hear from community partners, um, both new and uh, our old friends, um, and then also share what the work the port is doing. So we were able to have breakout sessions where we could talk about the fund um, and then and, and get more uh, partnership there. And then those pathways to working with the port. So how do we start building those connections between our different departments at the port that might be doing work um, similar to the South King County Fund um, and how do we strengthen those ties as well? So next slide, I think I'll pass it to you, Bukta. Yeah, we're, we're almost finished. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we look forward to your questions, but just real quickly, uh, the uh, commission passed a, a, a order uh, that allowed us to hire a consultant to do an evaluation of our work so far. You've heard some of the qualitative and quantitative impact during the presentation today, but we'll be continuing to work to implement these measures and metrics into our work moving forward so that we could report back on uh, that our accomplishments, but uh, many people were interviewed, community listening sessions were conducted. Next slide, please. Uh, as you heard, we have already made a lot of changes in the program to improve it as we've gone along in the last four years. And as Guadalupe mentioned, there's still much work to be done. 
But uh, some of what I think is really important is that through the support of the liaisons, we've reached communities who had never heard about the port before. People who didn't even know who we were, and, and also organizations who did not have prior relationships with us. And most importantly, organizations that did not have workforce development programs, and are now in the business of training their community members to get into pipelines of port careers which is incredible and beautiful. And so our work is really to continue to create, uh, support those pathways. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think most importantly, look at pathways that lead to quality living wage jobs and not minimum wage positions only. Um, to develop the metrics and support the metrics of you know, uh, the qualitative and quantitative, st uh, collect stories, tell you the impact. Um, and um, I want to thank the CPO and legal team who have provided so much support to us over the last four and a half years. We have been challenged by one another. We have grown together. We have offered a lot of support to one another. Nora Huey and her team, Sophia Mayo and others in CPO, uh, Pete Rammels, and uh, especially Ryan Stamper, who've worked with us so much to be able to create these changes and, and to really find new ways of being at the port, which we're really, really proud of. And um, as you can see, equity will continue to be centered in everything we do. And some of that, I think Guadalupe mentioned this, but our application process now is a two-step process so that there is a very short letter of intent that people submit. Um, many of the communities who are approaching us in the process are not even familiar with what we mean about the port careers. And even though we spell it out, aviation, maritime, green jobs, and construction, still they apply. And it's clear that they need more education, more visibility to what these jobs are. So we're going to continue to do this great work. And um, as I think you heard earlier from Executive Director Metric, we'll be c coming back to you in December or January to talk with you about the next phase of the fund. Um, as you saw earlier, we still have $2.7 million that have not been invested. And uh, RFP, uh, the round four is now in process and being evaluated. So we'll probably commit those dollars by the first quarter of next year. So we have some time to talk with you and envision together the next chapter of the fund. Thank you. We, what are your questions? Excellent. Thank you so much, Bukta. Who wants the first bite of the apple? Actually, um, yeah. no, I think, Guadal I think um, Guadalupe is right. I think this deserves a round of applause if we yeah. can. Okay, now, Commissioner Mohammed, you can have a first bite of the apple. He stole my thunder. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to express just deep gratitude and appreciation for the organizations that are here and all the organizations who've participated. I don't want to start naming names, but I know I've been to a number of um, events that staff have put on in partnership with the organizations. And so um, it's great. It's work that directly impacts our community, our community organizations. You can see the, the outcome very quickly and how excited people are about um, our, our industries, aviation, maritime, and um, 
there's a lot of opportunities um, that are available through through this grant and I just love how proud you all are of, of the program as staff too um, it brings me joy to watch you all talk about the program and talk about it in from a place of passion and I can I can tell there's a lot of care that goes into it I did have a, a couple of questions um, one of them was Elise, you mentioned that six, 654 trees have been planted. I'm just wondering, do you guys uh, track the success of that or the survival of those, those trees? Is that we, part of the program? We don't, um, but it is part of their uh, annual reporting. Um, we kind of look at how, how they can keep track of what, where the trees are. Um, one thing that we've been also trying to figure out, we, we're trying to figure out what where in the map that the trees are planted so that we can also look at some of our land stewardship plan for the port and see you know what are what are we doing in South King County as the port but then also what are our project partners planting um, and so the parks departments at the different cities are keeping track of that yeah it'd be interesting to go back and look at yeah. the success of the ones that you've all planted and what that looks like but I will but you pointed out that um, that the the South King County Fund, the one that focuses more so on workforce development, is contract. You emphasize the fact that it's contract and not grants. But then on the environmental one, it says that it's it's grants. How did you guys decide to make that distinction, that to make one of them grants and then make the other one contracts? It, it's actually a contract as well, okay, and that yep yep. And actually, that's something that we've been talking about: is how do we make it clear that it's it's. A contract and so changing the name from environmental grants program to environmental improvement program so that the public is also not confused that this is not just a grant where we're giving the money up front but that you're invoicing as a contract yeah and there's staff that's managing them and all yeah. that. well yeah. that, that concludes my questions I again thank you so much for the work you all are doing and I look forward to supporting the South King County Fund when it comes back to us thank you excellent Commissioner Hazagawa well um, yeah, I want to say congratulations because when you started this, you start from scratch and year by year, cycle by cycle, you make improvements. And we heard from public comment today that they're looking for us to be able to enact improvements into the application process. And there was so much information here about um, how that's been an iterative process and still we're learning from that. And so. Um, I just really want to commend you all for being so flexible to meet the need where it's at and proactively tearing down some of those barriers so that we can get the fund as it's intended to the source as it's intended. Um, I am wondering, you mentioned that um, those who are eligible for um, to apply include not just CBO or um, like nonprofits, C3 organizations or chambers, but also groups with a fiscal sponsor. Is that new? That is new for the most that, recent that's cycle? Since the beginning, actually, we've it had this as a fiscal sponsor, yeah. Okay, cool. And that's all um, defined in all of our okay. communications around it about the eligibility? Yes. Excellent. Um, and then I was wondering, 
you know, how do you categorize the different projects? Because I imagine that, I mean, at the Port of Seattle, we talk about our triple bottom line all the time because we realize how these different things go hand in hand, advancing environmental sustainability and economic empowerment and advancing racial and gender equity. How do you categorize any project into just one of these buckets? How do we categorize um, the project? So we're really looking at it, I think, in, at its, in its entirety. You know, really looking at where is the impact, what specific area is it focusing on, and, and um, keeping in mind who are the other partners. Right. What does this whole mosaic really look like, and where does that piece, powerful as it is, fit into the bigger picture? Yeah. But organizations decide which they're going to apply for, but there are multiple intersections of these issues, as you saw, in the, the, just even from the names of the organizations uh, who've applied, you can see that there are many that are uh, doing green jobs in environmental sector, but uh, also applying for economic recovery dollars. And I see you've made the distinction between economic recovery and community capacity building. I remember when I first took office and you're first briefing me on this amazing program, there was a conversation around could we expand this program to provide economic recovery or relief to, you know, to community-based organizations. And there was some question about legal challenges, perhaps the use of the ACE Fund or the South King County Community Impact Fund in this way. And I'm wondering how have we been able to overcome that to get to where we are now? Do you want to address that, Pete? Sure, I'll address it. Um, we did a lot of analysis coming out of uh, COVID. Pete Rammels, uh, Porsche <laughs> General Counsel, thanks, uh, about the ability to kind of transform the fund using our economic development authority under state statute. And so that's kind of the door that opened for us to be able to do these programs. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'd also like to thank you for your acknowledgement of the um, lack of representation of Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and tribal stakeholder groups who we know that they are clustered, um, they are throughout Washington State, but the majority of them do live actually in King County in our jurisdiction, that they've been disparately impacted by the pandemic, that they are climate refugees. We think about what happened in Lahaina, we think about what happened, the explosion, um, the volcanic eruption off of Tonga. Um, we hear about their need for culturally specific foods and food security. And I hear these amazing presentations from folks in the room um, that how they've been able to provide a program exactly like that for their own specific cultural community. And what I love about this group, you know, I've had the chance to be able to attend some of your, one of your symposiums, is that there's an intentional space that we are facilitating, creating for the folks actually doing the programmatic work and leading the programs to caucus with each other, share lessons learned, strategies, and that's such an important piece of community capacity building. Um, and, um, and I know that the NHPI communities and the tribal communities would have so much to be able to, um, contrib to contribute and also to learn 
uh, really in this re reciprocal sort of um, model that we've been able to stand up here. Um, so I appreciate the acknowledgement of, of that lack of representation and um, you know, I, I, I do hope that you'll continue to lean on us as commissioners to be able to open doors or, um, or facilitate conversations in whatever way that might be helpful um, because as you put it, you know, there's, it's good work and it's always evolving. Um, so, so thank you for that. And I think my, um, I also wanted to uh, go to page 15, slide 15 in the presentation. I too took note of, you know, the funded projects. There's 37 funded projects for environmental improvement, 654 trees planted, tr th over thousands of training and educational hours invested, Green City Partnership. Um, how, uh, to what extent, well, I want to acknowledge that this program, programmatic work, and as you said, the proof is in the pudding, lives our land stewardship principles that we just passed, which is consultation with community members. Um, how do you imagine as we have a, an order coming up that really codifies what our goals are, how that will relate to the body of, of the work of the community members and CBOs that we're empowering to, to lead on this work on the home front. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give you one example. Um, with our partners in um, uh, Aviation Environmental um, who are building out that uh, tree and land stewardship plan, the events that we hold, we hold about two tree planting events um, every year. And so our community partners that have been funded through the Environmental Grants Program are attending these events as well and so that they can also collaborate, bring some of their um, uh, constituents and communities that they serve learn from our port staff experts about what land stewardship plans can look like um, and we actually have an event coming up in in December where we're going to be connecting our community organizations and leaders as well as um, city staff members to learn more about what the port is doing on that end and as well as collaborating and learning about some of the projects that we're that they're working on in South King County I see this as a wonderful opportunity to be able to expand our reach in, in this work because the our principles and our order applies to port properties, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and this is for the work that's happening in, in community spaces. So, um, and that said, our values are our values. And so um, lending that also in collaboration and co-creation with these CBOs, I think is just beautiful, beautiful extension of, of the work of the port. Um, finally, slide 16. What is, what is, community reviewers participate for the entirety of consensus process. What is the consensus process when it comes to review? Well, I oh. can speak to that. Okay. Um, because it is, it is a little challenging. It is uh, bringing together the group to assess um, and evaluate each project. And consensus is that we have to come to agreement. And so there is this um, dialogue of back and forth, but ultimately a decision needs to be made. And so that, and it relies on consensus agreement. That is the procedure that is used right now in this process. Guadalupe, if you don't mind, I want to add that previously, Previously, the port, uh, so for, for every time we have an RFP go out, uh, you know, we all work uh, port-wide 
to bring together panels that are representative of multiple offices to, to read uh, applications, score, and make recommendations for the final organization that's funded. This is across the port uh, practice. But what is unique here is that community uh, representatives were invited to sit in the process, but to not actually have a vote and to not really go to the end of the process. And, and this is really a pretty incredibly big change for us as an organization that really community uh, representatives now ha are, are part of the process every step from the very beginning to the end. Um, and that, that is, even though it sounds like a small thing, it is really pretty big. No further questions. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you. Commissioner Feldman, anything? Thanks so much for the presentation and thank you for uh, not letting your enthusiasm wane as this project evolves and it's really brilliant to watch how we're being responsive to the times and lessons learned and all that good stuff. So um, from the inception we now have prioritized the economic to 70% and the environmental to 20% and the WIMBY to 10%. If we take the number of projects and divide it by the amount of money that is allocated, you get $186,000 for each project. I know it's divided up differently, but of the 28 projects, about $186,000 each for economic, $25,000 each for environmental, and $109,000 each for WIMBY. And so I understand you're having a little bit of a challenge recruiting applicants for the environmental program and that you did this brilliant job of coming to the Highline Forum, sending up the flare, saying, you know, come and get it. And I really appreciate that. And I think we can do more of that in, you know, the various meetings that we participate in. But when you, having been a longtime member of the environmental community and a $20,000 grant is a lot more work than it is to just do the work without the money. And so I don't understand why we specifically put it in statute or whatever the guidance. Why are we intentionally limiting the environmental grants to 20,000 when in fact, you know, you can do multi-year, you can do $60,000, but um, you don't have to cap it. Why are we capping it? Originally, we had it at 10000 for ACE, and so we increased it to 20000 uh, in cycle one for Southgate County Fund. Um, essentially, a, a big part of it is that the previous three to one match, we weren't seeing organizations who were applying for um, a lot more money like the Economic Recovery Grants Program. Um, so these kind of, it makes it a little bit more reasonable to do it at 20000 and then when we entered into the multi-year contracts, we thought, okay, let's keep it at around 60000 so that these projects are manageable for these small community-based organizations, because our organizations that are funded are a lot smaller than or newer, um, uh, newly established organizations or community groups, where meeting that match requirement was a little bit more difficult at a higher amount. Um, I can't give you the reason for, but I can come back to you why, why it is capped that way, but um, I, I, can, I can figure that out for you. Well, thank you, because there are some big environmental mm -hmm. organizations that are quasi-government in yeah. scale. If you look at the 
World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy. I mean, if they got engaged, I mean, though there's big money that could be spent, but what you brought up was a really kind of an interesting opportunity to partner more closely with the parks departments in those various communities. And so I was thinking, you know, is there a way almost to have like a standing fund with the parks departments that they're the match or they can be part of the match um, and that they all, we all have parks in our cities mm -hmm. and so that we, and communities own their parks, right? So is there, a, is there not a way in which we can just let folks know that if you want to do good in these parks, there's resources to do that? You know, I'm being top of the head thinking here, but again, it might help with the, with the match situation, but also leverage resources from the cities. Yeah, we, we do partner closely with each of the cities in, for the environmental grants program, um, especially because a lot of the improvements that are made um, have to be signed off by the city or any permitting that happens. So it's an opportunity for us to collaborate with our um, city departments um, ahead of time, especially during our info sessions. I will mention as well, um, we just held four info sessions for this cycle um, and had over 20 uh, new organizations participate that are interested in, in applying. So we're looking forward to seeing when it closes, how many folks are um, gonna be applying, but all of the organizations that have attended are brand new um, and have been hearing about it through the symposium, through our city engagement um, and uh, other events that we've held throughout the year. Thank you for that. But it was also surprising to me that you have a one-month grant deadline. Six weeks. Six weeks. All right. So it's just from the time you know about it to the time you get to put, pull it together a proposal to the time you write it, it's kind of tight, you know. And um, and then do we have these facilitators that we have in other programs to help with grant writing? That's part of our because we have that in I know in other efforts in our navigators and things like this our our liaisons support that work and so we're doing a lot of the outreach ahead of time um during the summer um during the uh eight, um during spring and summer and so our liaisons when we bring them on board help drive that um, and then also during our info sessions we go through what the application looks like what building out a scope of work looks like how to contact your um city and, and state so you are and, you are facilitating yeah, that and it just seems to me that with a relatively short deadline that, that this could be something that we could look at targeting some of the communities that you're specifically looking, reaching out to, we can maybe do some uh, targeted efforts to uh, give an early heads up. And I'll just add one more thing um, before um, I pass it to Bukta, is that we also have a two-page application. Um, and so we were really intentional about making it short um, and so that folks don't have to take a lot of time if they don't have a grant writer or if they're a one or two person team that they can kind of quickly talk through their scope of work and then build out their budget. So we try to make that really accessible and easy for, for folks to be able to apply. I got one more. I just, just wanted to okay, add so to that point, Commissioner, that uh, because we know six weeks is not enough, especially for smaller organization, that is especially why we are doing so many uh, Q&A sessions, uh, we are doing the symposium, we are do using the liaisons to do outreach, and also keeping the, de the dates of the RFPs consistent so that we could say to everyone, expect for it to come out in, the, you know, in April of next year, so that when the newsletter goes out and announces the deadline, people have had a lot of notice. Excellent. Last thing, in the tourism department, 
I'm very much pushing for ecotourism, right? But there's also a, a very big effort right now to expose communities to nature in, in a touristical kind of way. And I'm just wondering, um, outdoor experience, expanding the outdoor experiences, are we, would that be something you would consider uh, suitable for funding for this kind of, you know, experiential, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the but ultimate tourism is you know, what they call nature positive tourism, <laughs> where you go out and visit and then do some good while you're there. But I'm just wondering, you know, you can't do good until you know what's in your backyard somewhat. So I'm just wondering, do you see that within the bounds of the as grant? As long as there's a public improvement. Um, so if they are participating in, you know, either park cleanup or um, um, installing artwork or any kind of public improvement, an organization could apply for it. Um, so it's not internal. Just not it's not experience. internal improvement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just not uh, an experience isn't good enough um, in terms. Well, thank of you for that clarification. Yeah. All right. Well, my contribution to this conversation was the round of applause. So. <laughs> Um, no, actually, I do have two quick questions. One is six weeks, for, but f you have a two-step process. So, is the six-week deadline when the LOI is due, or is it when the actual RFP application is due? We have two different timelines. So, for step one, you have um, almost six weeks to respond, and it's a quick three-question. It should be no longer than three pages. Yeah. Um, and then at that point we assess those and then we invite to participate in step two in submitting a full RFP. So it, it kind of is, I think, transparent and it involves less work on our partner's behalf so they don't have to pull together a big RFP. And how, how much time goes between step uh, one and step two? Usually six weeks and then six weeks. Okay, so it's actually 12 weeks. Well, this is for um, economic recovery. The environmental does not have a two-step process. Okay, okay, that's a good new distinction. And then, um, real quickly, uh, you know, we're on our fourth funding cycle here, uh, which is very exciting. Um, I'm curious, as the first cycle uh, rolls off, I guess you could say, because it's two years at a time, is the expectation for them to, or, or the hope for them to reapply for? cycle four and beyond so they can get re-upped, or is the expectation for us to go out and look for other CBOs and organizations to fill those positions, or is it maybe a combination of, of, of new and old? I'm curious what the strategy. That's a very, that's a very good question. Uh, the first round, we only had a one year. Uh, ah, it right. was in the second round that we started doing three-year options, right. and so we have not graduated the anyone from a three-year program yet but as we are uh, envisioning the next chapter of South King County Fund we're absolutely coming back to you with some answers to those questions uh, of uh, you know how many new organizations do we want to leave space for do we want how many of the same organizations we want to continue forward with so we're, we're figuring that out okay great well I look forward to hearing that strategy yes um, thank you again so much for all the terrific work. Really appreciate it. Um, I think I've said this in the past, but this is some of the best things that uh, we do as a port. And, uh, you know, I think it's fair for me to give some, I'll give a shout out to uh, our former colleague, uh, Peter Steinberg, who uh, was really the, the, the impetus for this. And, um, you know, I think. Uh, he didn't build on the ACE fund. Yeah. 
So, it, you know, this is maybe the third iteration and potentially going on to a fourth iteration uh, once we kind of make some improvements uh, in Q1 or maybe even Q4 of this year. Um, I won't give it away, but we are going to make some changes to the program. Uh, but it's a long time coming. It's great work. And I think you're right. There are people who now know about the port way, way more and way better as a result of all this terrific work. So thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you, commissioners. Thank you, Excellent. thank you so much. All right, we are on to our last item of the day. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record and then Executive Director Metric will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11B, the 2024 Maritime and EDD Operating and CIP Budgets Briefing. Commissioners. We're ready. <laughs> this, <laughs> why, why, do we, why do we end with the dense stuff? It's okay. All right. Well, we're going to bookend. They're like bookends. We begin with a budget. <laughs> it's true. It's, that's and we're ending with a budget. I thank you for your endurance. Commissioners, I thank you for your endurance. Uh, this morning, you already spent several hours in a study session focused on the aviation budget this afternoon. We'll delve into the details with, on our other two major lines of businesses. Uh, maritime and economic development. Uh, as with the airport, we're pleased to be projecting strong growth in the year ahead <clears throat> in some parts of the programs as we will see the full recovery of these business lines after the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the same factors impacting the other parts of our organization are relevant here. Uh, some economic uncertainty, inflationary cost drivers, worldwide situations, and the need to continue to invest in our workforce, not only for recruitment and retention generally, but specifically to ensure the successful delivery of our capital program. As I did this morning, I want to make sure to thank the incredible finance and budget staff who spent hundreds of hours over the last few months to bring us up to this point, and all the staff that participated in those discussions as well. We're not only focused on how to responsibly and strategically craft our plans for next year, but also very committed to ensuring that these budgets reflect our raised values and help us achieve our overarching mission and major goals that you've set before us. So the presenters this afternoon are Dave McFadden, Managing Director, Economic Development D Division, Stephanie Jones-Stebbins, Managing Director, Maritime Division, and Kelly Zupan, Director, Seaport Finance and Budget. So I think we're gonna begin, it is on here to begin with Dave, but I'm not sure if it's Dave or, or we'll begin right with Kelly. Okay. Be before we continue, I, okay, now we have a third commissioner in the room. Okay, go ahead. Do we need a seventh inning stretch here, maybe? <laughs> Is that, uh, yeah? Okie dokie. All right. Good afternoon, commissioners, uh, Executive Director, Director Metric. Uh, we will now be presenting the preliminary operating budgets and capital plan for the Maritime and Economic Development Divisions. Uh, next slide, please. Below, sh below shows where we are on the timeline. The Commission Retreat and Budget Development Briefing Feedback guide leadership on priorities which we will see incorporated throughout the presentation. Um, we have this meeting today in two weeks, the plan of finance briefing, and then the first and second reading in November. Next slide. I'll be going through these 
fairly quickly. Um, so, you know, if you need me to slow down, let me know. We will start the maritime division. We will start with the maritime division, including the joint venture with the Northwest Seaport Alliance and the stormwater utility. This is followed by the economic development division, then closing the operating budget discussion with a roll up of the seaport or non-aviation divisions. Do note, we do have an estimate of the Northwest Seaport Alliance distributable income. However, the details underlying the income along with their CIP will be presented on October 27th to the managing members. We will finish the presentation with an overview on our capital improvement plan. In contrast to aviation, Seaport has about a dozen different lines of business, each with their own profit and loss statements. So we tried to keep high level. We have additional detail in the appendix. If you'd like anything further, please have your staff reach out and we can provide any additional supporting documents you would like. I will now turn over to Stephanie Jones-Stevens, Managing Director of Maritime, who will walk you through, through some of our key strategies and approaches guiding the maritime budget. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, we next slide, please. I'm going to start with the bottom line up front. Our revenue is up 14% in our uh, projected to be up 14% in our 2024 budget, and our expenses are projected to be up 9%. Now, before we get uh, too excited about how we have extra money, I want to uh, just point out that really we are on a long-term strategy to try to get to self-funding, meaning we pay for everything in maritime, including the support from corporate, and paying for our infrastructure, which is, which is a significant expense as well. So we are on the path to get there, but, not get, but, that, but that more revenue than expense starts to get us closer. We have nice cruise occupancy uh, next year projected. Uh, we are kind of fully recovering from the pandemic. We, I'll talk a little bit more about some rate increases. The uh, 106 warehouse has come online, uh, offset by some lower grain volumes. On the expense side, similar to what you heard this morning from Lance uh, and Heidi, we had uh, many good proposals, people, uh, uh, well thought out, important things. We were only able to approve about half of those, so hard decisions uh, to make. And those decisions were really guided by the business drivers and our strategies that you're going to see next. So with that, I'm going to ask to go to the next slide. So talk a little bit about our, um, the business drivers for our 2024 budget. Supporting the long-term sustainable financial picture for the Maritime Division, it's another kind of getting to zero, getting to zero debt. We're trying to get to a position where we are covering not only all, again, our expenses, but also our infrastructure. So we're on the path to that, and you'll see some more information about that in, in a minute. And remember that when we set that goal, actually, probably only Commissioner Fellman was here, when we set that goal, we were anticipating that we would be building another cruise terminal in order to help <coughs> towards that. So we are, um, and we, that is not part of our plan, so we're endeavoring to really manage our finances um, very, uh, with a lot of fiscal responsibility. Capital delivery process, you're going to hear about our large capital program, although it's not as big as the aviation division. It's, it's still a billion, so that's not just uh, pocket change. 
Uh, and that takes investment on the expense side as well. We're bringing on more staff. We're putting in uh, more resources into place, bringing a planning department on board. So that is a budget driver for us. Next slide. Significant amount of uh, resources and investments going into uh, community and environmental initiatives, so advancing the Green Corridor. Uh, a number, it's significant staff time, more than uh, consultant dollars. Uh, we are finalizing and beginning implementing a parks management strategy is including our, included in our budget. And then around the port, uh, around the Maritime Division, investments in implementing the Maritime Clean Air Action Plan. It's not just our environmental sustainability team. Our fleet team, for instance, is making significant investments. Also making, really all of our businesses are making the investments to uh, transition to a clean energy economy. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, strengths, opportunities, threats, and weaknesses. I, I, I will skip over this except to appreciate the point that Commissioner Mohammed made this morning that sometimes our greatest strengths and our greatest uh, weaknesses are uh, two edges of the same sort. So I, that is certainly represented here. Next slide, please. Uh, equity, I uh, want to just highlight a couple things. Um, we do have continued funds for our park strategy outreach in, and beginning implementation in our budget. Uh, we're adding funding for um, EDI certification, uh, sponsorships to support workforce development. Um, on our WIMBY goals, I, I do want to point out, and I've been confirming this with uh, me, and I was under the impression that our um, last full year of WIMBY spending was the highest in the port at about 20%. He informs me that is not correct. So not to be competitive or anything, but we did have the highest construction spend for WIMBY uh, business in 2022 at 43%. So very proud of that number, and that's really staff teams around the um, department that, that focus on that. Uh, I, we neglected to put uh, investment in human trafficking on this slide, but we do have that in our budget. And then there is also in, uh, investment in the Maritime High School. Uh, I'm actually not sure if it shows in the Maritime budget or EDI budget, but just know that is included. Next slide. Uh, this is the way I think about our maritime strategies. Uh, we know we really have a foundation that we rest on, safety and resiliency. We want our folks to go home at, safely at the end of the day. Talked about environmental sustainability. We need to pay for what we do. Uh, we need to provide what our customers need. But when all resting on that foundation, we really, as we look to the future, think about sustainability, innovation, and equity is the things we need to be successful in the long term in our harbor. And if we do all those things, we create the kind of quality, uh, uh, livable wage jobs that we heard uh, Bukta talk about earlier. Next slide. This is a slide that shows a maritime uh, trending towards being able to, able to cover all of the cost when we pull everything together as a portfolio. Some businesses do better. Some businesses uh, we subsidize from other businesses, but the point is we want to get to the point where that revenue exceeds all of our, uh, all of our um, expenses and our investments. And I'm going to turn it over to Kelly Zupan uh, at this point to uh, continue the presentation. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, 
you'll see as you'll see as we go forward similar slides to this um, the revenue is represented with the black line and the stack bar indicating the various expense categories and including direct costs and green support services primarily maintenance project management and environmental and light blue central service central services and dark and including police and dark blue and depreciation which is kind of an indicator of our capital investment in gray cruise growth along with terminal 106 ground lease are the drivers getting us close to break even one interesting takeaway is the one percent growth in depreciation over time and higher support services which indicate higher maintenance efforts to add life to aging assets along with a recent history of deferring capital projects to address this issue leadership has ramped up project delivery resources the past three years the benefits are setting in as you will see later in the cip presentation we are starting to get more projects working their way into construction and completion next slide please this slide shows net operating income after depreciation by business line i'd like to point out two takeaways first crews and to a lesser degree grain really support the rest of the maritime business and initiatives second except for the grain terminal all our business lines have improved their bottom line from the 2023 budget next slide please revenues are up 14% from last year's budget. We are expecting 100% occupancy at crews. Grain volumes reflect the continued suppressed demand from China. And starting in April, real estate will be receiving the full payment of T106 lease with Grant Trammell Crow, as you heard from Stephanie earlier. And you can see we took a tiered approach when factoring in recreational boating increases this year. Next slide, please. expenses are up nine percent from last year in direct expenses we added seven hundred thousand dollars in outside services for our planning team potential efforts include central waterfront power and terminal 91 master plans along with planning for parks electric vehicles and strategies for salmon bay and fishermen's terminal support services growth is primarily driven by annualization or full year impact of maintenance environmental and grant administration staff added in 2023 as we have a higher proportion of newer staff we expect a lower charge to capital rate we added five new fts which are detailed later in the presentation next slide please the next six slides will go through the business lines fairly quickly we do have more detailed version of profit and loss statements in the appendix cruise continues to be a growth vehicle for maritime while absorbing continually higher proportions of support and central service expenses next slide with tiered pricing and direct cost containment recreational boating is back to revenues covering operating expenses and a portion of capital costs yeah i'm just going to jump in here uh, and, and uh, point out that we are taking a uh, a tiered approach to our uh, rate increases for uh, for next year is is, is our um, intention when we 
it, uh, we, we raised our rates at Shoshul Bay Marina and our recreational marina is 10% last year and that was, we really heard a lot from our customers that that was a matter of concern. We have approximately 350 liveaboards at uh, Shoshul as well. Nonetheless, uh, as a policy, we have not, subs we, we do not want to subsidize our recreational boating uh, as business as a rule. And as you can see, it's not cover as a business, not covering costs. Additionally, uh, when we look at other marinas, we're considerably behind market, particularly in the larger vessels. So we are proposing a 12% increase for vessels over 42 feet and a 7% increase for vessels uh, 42 feet or below. And we will have a very robust uh, stakeholder outreach uh, project. Uh, uh, so that uh, folks, they may not be happy, but they will understand our thinking and have the information and won't have to submit PDR requests and things like that. We will uh, endeavor to be transparent. So um, back to you, Kelly. Sorry, Stephanie, I think Commissioner Feldman has a quick question. Yes. Obviously, I'm likely to hear about this. Um, Indeed. And I threw my back out. But um, I just, the uh, comparative, comparatives that you just spoke to, Yes. He just provide that. So, I mean, we talk about this all the time that the yes. private marinas are, are you yeah. know, you set the market rate with the private marina, even though we're a public marina, we're, we're maintaining that competitive thing. And there's not a lot of choices of where to be a liveaboard, for sure. I mean, you can have a boat, but you can't live on it. Um, hard enough to moor it. So it is sort of like a, you know, it's a seller's market. Um, but I just want to make sure that when we get questions, yep. we can point to what Elliott Bay does. And our intent will be do. to release all that information uh, proactively so that yeah, I'm folks asking don't have to you to proactively arm it. Yes, Thank we'll you. do so. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Elliott Bay fishing and commercial revenue is budgeted up 9% from uh, 2023 as we're starting to see some event activity. Come back to Terminal 91. Uh, next slide, please. Ship canal fishing and operations revenue is up 9%. We are implementing a tiered rate structure there as well with a slightly different delineation um, at Fisherman Terminal for recreational moorage while the fishing vessels are out at sea. Next slide, please. Maritime portfolio management revenue went up 25% due to that escalated rent on the Terminal 106 ground lease. Direct expenses are down as we right-size the tenant improvement budget, which, which offset payroll increases. Next slide, please. As discussed earlier, revenue at the grain terminal is down 11% from decrease in Asian demand based on the preliminary forecast from Louis Dreyfus, the tenant there. All right, next slide. Next slide, please. All right, next. Okay, next we'll go through the maritime service groups. These teams are in the maritime division but do work and charge their costs to the entire seaport including the northwest seaport alliance the stormwater utility and the joint venture 
maintenance department expenses increased 13% to uh, $30.1 million. Um, payroll went up um, as we budgeted two new FTEs, three apprenticeships, and five emergency hires. Additionally, we saw a higher increase in the cost of materials and equipment. Below are a couple charts, a couple charts to show where maintenance is doing most of their work. Okay. Sure. Go ahead. Commissioner You mentioned that um, revenues from grain is uh, is down because of the de decreased demand from Asia. Can you be yeah. more specific than that? Yeah, I think we talked about it a couple quarters ago. They have. Um, Part of it is some of it is the tariff related but what has happened is they they've already got a full stock there and um they've been you mean china specifically you mean china Japan? it's mostly china yeah china specifically that's far and away our largest hire and um they they look to be buying they're going to start buying more from us again in the future and we've heard from louis dreyfus it was going to come back later in the year and it has to a degree but it's still well below where we had been in prior years Mm. Thank you. Question. All right. Okay. Um, waterfront project management payroll expense went up nine percent, and outside services are down ten percent. As we've added new staff here, the team is is adding budget also added budget to help develop a new project delivery process manual manual which will help you know with the onboarding process for that new staff and do note that some of the work and expenses incurred by the new northwest seaport alliance um, expense projects are not in here it's kind of the way we budget it there as well um, next slide please the Maritime Division has, continu has continued to heavily prioritize our commitment to environment and sustainability, nearly doubling resources the past few years. Expenses increased 17% in 2023. Salaries and benefits are up due to four positions hired in 2023 and one in 2024. The next slide allocates where the team is planning to spend sort of consulting or outside services. Next slide, please. Here is a list of consulting support for the environmental and sustainability team. Investments in air and habitat are pretty consistent with prior years. Um, we added the Centennial Park Coastal Study this year. Next slide, please. Security costs have gone down from last year tied to lower needs related to the Smith Cove Cruise Terminal special events. Um, you'll see also that, you know, Terminal 46, our portion, and the Seaport Alliance portion represents most of the, or a high, a high proportion of the spend for the security team as well. Next slide, please. And the, here's a list of the five new FTEs that um, Stephanie approved for the Maritime Division. Um, next slide, please. 
this slide um, this slide represents the Port of Seattle's interest in the joint venture with uh, North Seaport Alliance. The $57.2 million is the preliminary distributable income forecast from the Northwest Seaport Alliance, which is 12% higher than 2023 due to uh, the Terminal 5 second phase and some miscellaneous revenue. Uh, Contra revenue is our half of the Terminal 46 lease with the Alliance with the other half showing up as an expense in cruise. Overall, we are seeing a 12% increase in revenue and a 5% increase in expenses, which are tied to Northwest Seaport Alliance properties, but for various reasons not, not charged um, to the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Uh, next slide, please. This is the preliminary stormwater utility financial statement. The stormwater utility is based on cost recovery like the airport and we will, we will be coming back to you later in the year for adoption of rates. Next slide, please. All right, I don't know if you wanna pause for questions now or? Please continue. Okay, all right. Next, we'll move on to the Economic Development Division and um, Dave McFadden will go through the first couple slides here. Are you the, sec the next slide, Kelly? Um, yeah, I can. I, I'm yeah. happy to do it. I'll I, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> we're doing the bottom line up front. And so as you can see, our net operating income is a little off. I'll have Kelly explain that's related to our uh, conference facilities. Our revenue concomitantly is also down. That's, that's, those are two are tied together. Our expenses are just slightly up about 1%, so we're pretty lean um, going into 2024. Um, and I want to just note that our budget includes about two plus million dollars of levy investment that helps support diversity and contract and a grant program and a few other programs. Our budget uh, drivers is again, it's a very competitive pricing environment for our conference and event center. That's why our revenues are down. I would expect that to change as we move into 2024, but we're being careful there. We certainly have increased maintenance and central services costs. Uh, and on tourism promotion, supporting small business accelerators are new initiatives that we will continue to want to support. Kelly, did you want to add anything there? No, that's great. Thank you. Okay, great. Let's go to the next slide then. Uh, I think you've seen this. I'm I just going to pick a couple things. One, we really appreciate your support and interest, uh, your commitment to economic, equitable, and real estate development really do make a difference. Economic development is a team sport and it starts with your leadership. One of the things I want to point out is, is this uh, double-edged sword. While we have great, diverse, attractive properties, they're also challenged. I mean, earlier you heard about some of the challenging soil conditions at T91, the unknown, the potential brownfields contamination. We face those in almost every direction in terms of real estate uh, development. So I think that's enough uh, on the SWAT. Let's keep going to the next slide. This is just a real quick highlight on the equity and budgeting investments we're making. One of the big things we're doing is adding an ombudsperson FTE to the diversity and contracting team. We heard that Wimby businesses need support and will be benefiting from somebody that's looking out for their interests when they're working on poor projects. 
We're also in the midst of completing a disparity study. This is the litmus test in terms of how we are doing with our WIMBY utilization, whether we're truly eliminating disparities within the port supply chain. I'm going to come back to that one in a moment when we talk about uh, diversity and contracting budget. We're going to continue the new business, uh, community business connectors initiative. We're very proud to get that launched last year. It's up and running now. It's starting to hit its stride. We actually go from seven connectors to nine connectors in 2024. We will continue to support the Duwamish Community Hub in that partnership. And finally, when Kira and the team are developing real estate, we're driving a lot of apprenticeship utilization. And when it's a PLA project, we're driving priority higher. So, so those are some of the equitable things that we look at that are in our budget for next year. Let's keep going. That's to you, Kelly. Thanks, Dave. Um, the Economic Development Division revenues are down 3% from the 2023 budget, but up from the 2023 forecast. As conference demand increases regionally, our conference and event centers are not yet seeing the benefits as new competitors are soaking up that demand with some loss-leading pricing. The Bell Street Garage is growing from increased demand tied to returning a cruise volumes and conferences. Uh, there is some potential upside with the return of office customers um, for the garage. The leasing portfolio is experiencing some return of concession revenue but soft demand on office space. One thing to note the out, that outside that $21.5 million in revenue listed, there is another $10 million in revenue from projects Kira Lise and the real estate development team have helped uh, generate for maritime and aviation over the last couple of years. So real quickly, Kelly, you said that the revenues are down 3% on the budget, but up on the forecast? From, from the 2023 forecast, up from this year's forecast, because we accounted for, in the forecast, we accounted for some of that slower So our forecast actually under? Under uh, 2023 budget, correct. So we... Okay, so we we forecasted lower than reality, is what you're saying. For yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lower than what we but what we budgeted for 2023, and so 2024 is sort of right in the middle of what we budgeted in 2023 and what we're expecting 2024 to be at. Okay. Um, the next slide, please. Economic development expenses are up two percent from 2023. Increased maintenance and central service um, costs are offset by some of the lower variable cost at the conference and event centers and right-sizing broker fees. We are seeing a 3% growth in the initiatives. And as you will see later, we added an ombudsperson and eliminated a senior real estate manager position, keeping FDs flat for the flat year over year. Next slide, please. This slide, this slide shows the trending for the Economic Development Division revenues. Re revenues have been stabilizing around 21 to 22 million a year, and expenses are right about where they were pre-COVID, absent inflation. Next slide, please. The Economic Development Real Estate Portfolio has historically been able to cover their direct costs and support services, but not central services and depreciation. Um, planned Terminal 91 Uplands development decisions will have a big impact on the future financials um, for this business line. Um, the next few slides, Dave will walk you through 
um, his team's programs, goals, and initiatives. Thank you. I mean, Thank you, Kelly. Manager director. Um, I'm going to cover diversity and contracting department first. You know, their mission is really to increase women minority business enterprise utilization across the board, uh, ultimately to reduce those disparities in our contracting processes. As I just mentioned, we're going to be completing the disparity study during quarter two next year. That's really going to tell us how we've done over the last five years. I think we've made tremendous progress, but that independent analysis will really tell us where we truly are and inform what we need to do going forward. So the biggest thing we're doing next year really with this program is establishing new five-year goals to guide the program into the future. And we're going to look forward to work with you on those goals and update both the policy and program in 2024. Let's go to the next slide. Um, tourism. You know, this has been a year where we built partnerships with Washington State Tourism and Visit Seattle to really promote Washington State internationally in select markets. But we've also continued to offer tourism grants, both the spotlight grant opportunities at the airport, but also our more traditional marketing grants. We're looking at expanding the tourism grant program next year, going to a two-year cycle, but also splitting off and creating a smaller fund for uh, our partners that need more time and just may need a little more help in terms of capacity. We want to make sure we're including everybody. And what we've seen is we've added an equity lens, a sustainability lens to the tourism grant program is we are generating interest from the community. And we want to be responsive. And this is based on some of the feedback they have given us over the last couple of years. We'll also continue to advance responsible tourism. We're just putting the finishing touches on a responsible tourism guidebook, and we'll be sharing that at the statewide tourism conference in a couple weeks. Let's keep going. Uh, this is really uh, both real estate development, but also the real estate management and Pier 69 headquarters management. Uh, I think you're pretty fresh on some of the projects we've been working on. We just heard about Terminal 91. T106 is well into development. Uh, we are actually in the bid process for the Maritime Innovation Center. So things are moving. And I haven't really seen as busy a time in my eight years in real estate. So it's exciting. We're also going to maintain a high occupancy uh, within our real estate portfolio. That's about a million square feet plus of, water, of, of properties along the waterfront. So it's a lot of work to keep those uh, spaces filled. We're in the midst, I think, as you know, of advancing recommendations within an aviation real estate strategic plan. We're continuing to work on opportunities with the Northwest Seaport Alliance. And part of our division's responsibilities is to maintain and operate our headquarters facility. Let's keep going. And in the center of that, Annie Tran and I are working on broader economic development initiatives, community initiatives. At the top of that list, I mentioned the Community Business Connector Initiative, very proud of that. But we provide a tremendous amount of partnership to cities through a grant program, but also chambers, small business development centers. We support Greater Seattle Partners. We, I think partnership is almost our middle name. And in the midst of that, Duwamish Community Equity has a special place for us. Uh, we help support the hub. 
And I think, as you know, we're also in the middle of Maritime Blue and all the Maritime Innovation Initiatives. So it's a broad breach, but um, great partners out in the community that I think we are supporting and uh, appreciate your, your support for those partnerships as well. Let's keep going. Uh, as Kelly mentioned earlier, we're really flat on uh, on FTEs. We do uh, we are eliminating a senior real estate manager position. We felt like no, that's not really needed. But what we do need is a diversity and contracting ombudsperson. So now we're going to level, but we're going to put that person in the right place for our division. Let's keep going. Back to you, Kelly. All right, well, we'll go ahead, uh, next slide, please. We'll go ahead and finalize the operating budget um, with the roll-up of the seaport right here. Um, net operating income before depreciation of about 58.4 million. It's a proxy for our operational cash flow. Um, it, we spent, you know, it's absent of some debt service payments, which is mostly tied to depreciation as well. It's an indirect indicator there. Environmental re remediation expense, both uh, for the Port of Seattle and Northwest Seaport Alliance, and public expense. Um, operational cash flow is available to pay for capital investments and any new expenses. Anything not paid from operational cash flow will um, rely on the tax levy. And um, that is, next slide, that's it for the operating budgets we have a question from Commissioner Azagala. um thank you so I'm wondering if we've had a conversation with ourselves about um, potentially acquiring land either in the Durham Valley or Soto or South Park Georgetown to expand our footprint of industrial lands to have an anchor for staff who are engaged with a you know Duwamish River cleanup or maybe even house PCAT give them the sense of stability that they're craving? All of the above. Um, we are looking at acquisitions. We've been looking at acquisition, just options and opportunities um, consistently ever since I arrived at the port and probably well before I got here. That's everything from properties that might be strategic to the Northwest Seaport Alliance, some properties that would support maritime economic development opportunities. Uh, we certainly have looked at Duwamish in a more special context. We were involved in the lease of the Duwamish Community Hub. We're meeting with the owners next week to talk about its future. And, you know, the first thing we want to do is just make sure we realize or, or recommend a lease option, which is in our current lease. But the owners have expressed interest in a broader dialogue, and we'll see where that goes. I think the um, things we always have to remember is that our you know, our statutes direct us in a fairly narrow vein in terms of how we look at acquisitions or even the lease of our property. And it really has to be for one of those kind of traditional purposes. But I have found that we can stretch at, on, on occasion as long as we put those pure, um, um, pure statutory uh, needs right in the middle of any equation. And I'll give you an example. Down at the Duwamish Community Hub, it was much easier to realize the lease of that facility with an operational presence at mm -hmm. Terminal 1 mm -hmm. of 17. And we need that 
tied to our operational presence or to our statutory responsibilities to really be successful with acquisition. And I'm looking over at my friend, uh, Mr. Rammels, and wondering if I've said it right or wondering if he'd care to add any counsel here. Peter Ammels again, General Counsel. Nice job, Dave. Mm -hmm. uh, we're continuing to look at these issues, though, because it's one of those you know, gray areas in the law that lawyers love. Yes. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I appreciate the sensitivities around what's required in order to be able to maintain a footprint for you know, operational uses for the Port of Seattle. There's so much that's happening. We just had a wonderful presentation by our you know, equity workforce development team who is being able to tell us a little bit about some really innovative ways to be able to engage community members, keep them involved, you know, in um, all kinds of different ventures uh, that meet community needs. And so hearing from folks like PCAT, hearing from members of the Duwamish community, the Duwamish Valley community, and having that anchor in place is so important um, that, uh, you know, it's a conversation that I think we just being mindful to, to keep alive in order to come to some sort of a permanent foothold. Um, um, and so as we're trying to just navigate those sensitivities, and we know that there's gonna be continued operation for the port um, in those areas, it's just something that I wanted to lift up here. And I wanted to thank you also for honoring my budget request and making sure that we're extending the lease in the meantime as we continue to work with community members to, to figure that out. Okay, thank you. Please continue. Okay. <laughs> uh, now we'll move on to the um, capital improvement plan. Here we have a breakdown of capital spend. Um, it, um, we'll be going over in the next five years. Over half this, the capital improvement plan or CIP is dedicated to preserving our existing assets. Next slide, please. When developing the capital improvement plan, we factored in the dynamics or environment the team is working under. The team is um, managing a large capital spend with several major projects coming into construction. We are preparing for uh, major environmental, environmental cleanup work as well. Additionally, the team is responsible for delivering the North Harbor capital and expense projects for the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Um, External, external costs and capacity issues uh, remain, leaving about four, and we're expected to leave about 400 million plus in projects that we had to postpone this year. Next slide, please. Here is the timeline of the steps in developing our CIP. Starting with engineering assessments and cash flow updates in the spring, um, communicating out big ticket items in the summer to, to you, to the commission and uh, executive director metric, and then boiling down the projects to the CIP we present to you today. Next slide, please. The Maritime and Economic Development Division draft plan includes about 579 million in spend. This doesn't include uh, the Seaport Alliance and joint venture, but from 2024 uh, to 2028. Um, most of the spend is expected in 2024 and 2025. Um, the lower right indicates the spend by uh, business group. 
I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, jump in there for a second, Kelly. The reason we're showing the Northwest Seaport Alliance is because it's not just the project management team does manage these projects, but just all of this, all of these projects are going through the Port of Seattle system. So contracts, people in engineering. So when we look at this big increase, we really were planning for increasing our pipeline to be able to deliver not just maritime economic development, but also all the Northwest Seaport Alliance projects. So it does have an impact on our budgeting as well. So does that shaded red account only for North Harbor projects or all Seaport Alliance it's projects? It's North Harbor projects. Okay. So it's not what we're, we're paying for half of everything. Right. And this is showing just, just what's the in the Harbor. North Harbor. Okay. So it's what our system has to deliver, not what we have to pay for. Thank, thank you for that clarification. So would 1% apply to that stuff, that, those expenses at all? So like 1% for the art? Yeah. No. That would, if we are building stuff in partnership with the Alliance, we're spending money, getting money back, but it's, I'm just asking it. It's, it's, yep, yep. No, it's really a clean division. I think that's a, a great topic division. to take up with your colleagues at Port of Tacoma. But, uh, and this is one of the real challenges for uh, delivering, like where do our policies versus Northwest Seaport Alliance policies come into play. So it's a, it, that is an intricacy that our staff deal with every day. But in terms of that particular item, no, that is not applied to Northwest well, Seaport Alliance We could projects. conceivably, I would imagine, as a decision, take the re receivable cash that we get and apply it to 1% without having to worry about what Tacoma thinks. I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering. Ride. Maybe it's a legal question, whatever. Sure, but uh, I think it could be. You know, I'm not right, saying we should do it. But point, it's point taken. Yeah, I was going to say, Commissioner. Yeah, that great point. We'll, we can take a look at that. That's a great. Uh, point. The, otherwise, the maritime budget is well. A billion is still is limited in terms of CIP. Uh, next slide, please. So here's our capital plan by business line. One thing to note is the number of status four commission authorized design and status five commission authorized construction projects. These really reflect the major, pro this here reflects mostly the major product projects. Additionally, we will be delivering uh, $71 million in mid cap projects, $10 million in small cap, and 21 million and 20 million in fleet spend centered around electrifying um, electrification of our fleet and then we have 70 million in reserves some of that um, you know Dave uh, Commissioner McFadden or, pardon me managing director McFadden <laughs> you know would would, would have available if a good Dave. investment came along <laughs> so. uh, next slide please Here are the same projects laid out by status. With over 200 million of large cap projects in the design or construction, we will be more likely to match the spending timeline that we have on here than we have been able to do in prior, um, prior year, previous years. Next slide, please. And we like to include this slide um, in our briefing presentations. I'm sure you've seen it a million times. Yeah, we're very proud as, of this. As, as we move projects through the cone of uncertainty, our accuracy regarding cost and schedule will continue to improve. Um, 
Managing Director McFadden and Stephanie Jones Stebbins will now give you some updates on our major capital projects. So um, I'm looking at these projects, and sure. um, these are projects that I think we've recently voted on and, and are very well aware of. So in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to suggest that we skip to new large projects. Is that fair? You betcha. Yeah, thank you. Next slide. Yeah. Yep. There we go. So new. Great. Um, and these are uh, these are actually probably smaller in size than the projects that we just skipped by. But we're. Um, do you want to go into detail on each of these? They'll be coming to you over the next um, over the next uh, couple over the next couple months, and we can kind of highlight a couple if you'd like. I I, I just weigh in and say that. The very first slide, Kelly said that a greater percentage of our capital is going towards asset maintenance and preservation. And this is where that stacks mm -hmm. up. And it's a result of our team going out and doing condition assessments that really say, yes, you need to take care of these assets. At least the first four bullets or five bullets on the list really represent that process. And the last two are a little different. No, I'd say the last two are actually pretty pretty darn similar. These are yeah. really all focused on asset renewal. So, next slide. Even though these are small projects, they kind of add up to significant number of projects. These will, uh, if you have questions about any particular one of them, we can go into them. But otherwise, I'd suggest we maybe go to the next slide. Uh, how do we define mid-cap projects? What is the threshold? It is typically it's under five million. Oh, it's just five million. I'm sorry, I should have, I didn't see that. It's in Go really ahead. dark font. <laughs> Again, these are mostly asset, almost entirely asset preservation, asset renewal projects. Next slide. Okay, so uh, these are the, really we had to make not only w with the expense budget, but also with the capital budget, we needed to make some hard decisions about things that we did not have capital capacity to, uh, to deliver, and you're going to hear more about our capital capacity on our next slide and how the, those decisions get made, but these were the projects that we have postponed, and we'll certainly be evaluating whether we can bring them forward, um, and these get into, I'd say these projects are the new ones, not the asset uh, renewal and replacement and asset preservation projects. I, I would add here that um, this is challenging this year. You know, revenues up. You know, we talk about our, our growing capital program. But, uh, Stephanie and I had to make some very difficult decisions about a month ago about what we could keep going and what we had to postpone for the future. And per uh, Commissioner Hasegawa's question about acquisitions, the Strategic Opportunity Fund was an earmark for that express purpose, and we just do not have the capacity in our plan right now to address that. Uh, next project, please. I'm next. Next slide, please. Okay, this slide hits on some of our future capital funding factors. Typically, we assume the Northwest Seaport Alliance projects will be funded first. Our future funding is impacted by growth in net income, continuation of the tax levy, 
um, what our environmental remediation liability payments are going to be and the level of commitment such as community programs and um, and our regional transportation contributions like the one made for the viaduct replacement then next slide please well I just, oh, the last bullet's an important one Kelly <laughs> yes our capital capacity is 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 constrained as we mentioned yes <laughs> thank you uh, next slide please okay these are the next steps listed below uh, Dan Thomas um, CFO Dan Thomas and Elizabeth Morrison the director of um, financial analysis will be uh, back to you in two weeks to discuss and seek input on the tax levy and the plan of finance and that concludes Seaport presentation all right thank you. <laughs> thank you so much Kelly good work and Dave and Stephanie I'll open it up for questions from commissioners no, no? All, right. all right Commissioner Feldman thank you so much and I appreciate your ongoing goal to be self preserving if that's the right word um, as at least we're preserving our assets, right? Cost neutral, right? Is that what we're talking? Yes, <laughs> so, one 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 of the things that we're talking, I was looking at, is the uh, Elliott Bay fishing um, revenues, and I, I kind of thought that the trend was fewer bigger ships. That, mm -hmm. the, but you're saying revenues still up, even though we're didn't we just get one ship and lose two? Yeah, actually, I mean, if you look back to that, I don't know if we can go back to that slide. Yeah. Revenue is, it's up from uh, 2023 budget, but it is down from where we were in previous years. Yeah. So, yes. We, um, we are getting a little bit of um, event revenue coming in. We've, a lot of that goes to that group. But, yeah, when you look back even further, we had um, a lot of our major revenue sources when that tunnel the viaduct tunnel was going we had those barges tied up on north 46 so that was you know as we've gone down to a sort of a different plateau when that yeah. left it I, I was just thinking more of 91 the mm -hmm. you know the whole idea of expanding six and eight i thought was in part to you know move fish boats over and but yeah, well we do need the capacity there there is not there are times when there is not room for everybody all the vessels at the docks um, but in terms of and revenue is projected to be up from last year but again when we were I guess we our picture the way we look at it is harbor wide so we we're looking at north part of 46 it is it is we got a little benefit from, from the um, out there last year from the um, the locks they were. That, 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 that's fine. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. just, uh, I'm just thought for long-term yeah. trends. I thought we're yep. losing fish boats as a trend, because fewer, bigger, more efficient fishing boats are what's being built in the trawl industry. We are generally seeing vessels being replaced with larger vessels. There was a case where we lost two and gained one, but in general, it's replacement with larger vessels that we have seen. All right, so one-to-one, -one, you still see that. I, I just wanted to yeah. see it as Thank a trend. You. I was also wondering, we had this uh, $10 million allocation for CEM in this current budget, um, and I'm not sure whether that's being carried over. No, we, we turned that to a prospective, prospective project. 
we've been working with the alliance, as you know, on that. And the I think your mic is on. Is your mic the improve. Oh, I knew it. The improvement of that road really would be to me speculative if we didn't have an end user or partnership to use that road. And so it can come back, but but we're not quite ready to pursue building that road until we have a specific user at CEM or a more defined relationship with NWSA around the use of CEM. I, I appreciate that, but I, I keep on hearing two different things on this. So, like right now we have this company, that Amazon-backed company, that's looking at drage as a service kind of idea that is exploring, spoke with you. Um, but, you know, it's a cart and horse thing. CEM can't be used for anything unless you can access it. And so, and we know truck parking is a challenge for the area, both in terms of just queuing as well as for charging. So I, I'm just not sure how you can not do this initial investment or, you know, share it with the city, because actually I thought part of our investment in West Seattle Bridge obligated the city to take on some of this uh, truck parking issue. And so I, I'm just, you know, from the day Amazon says they want truck parking to the day that we could deal with all the permitting at the city and all that stuff, we're going to lose that contract. And CEM has generated nothing for years. So I'm just trying to understand if we have to start when somebody's interested, we are not going to get a contract. Good questions. Um, I wasn't aware that the city had connected to our CEM improvement project. Or no, they're connected to parking, truck yeah, parking. Um, but I, I guess I wasn't seeing that clearly when I'm looking at a capital improvement project. We're very much at the very front end with the electric trucking company, okay? And as that conversation, if that conversation matures, yes, the access road comes right into the middle of it. But there could be a scenario based on that partnership where it's more economical and expeditious to have them take on that cost. So we're not forgetting about this project at all. We're waiting for, I guess, more formalization of intent either from a private sector partner or ideally to continue that conversation with the NWSA. So obviously there are multiple companies that are looking at the truck issue. This is just one right now, but so did we put out an RFI would we at least consider doing that so that we can put a temperature to it? We would. Um, we haven't even suggested we're at an LOI stage with this company. We're just. I'm, I'm talking about right, this, this company. Is beyond I mean, the budget. No, this, this is, is beyond the budget, Commissioner Fellman. So I'm going to cut you off. This is an of revenue no. that has we have not made right, money. Do you have on any other questions? Decade. Do you have any other questions? All right, that's that's fine. But at a certain point in time, we got to make investments. All right, that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Before we adjourn, I'd like to give the floor to Executive Director Metric. I understand we have a very special acknowledgement to make today regarding Rudy Kaluza and his retirement from the port. Um, Rudy, oh, there you are. He's joined Thanks. us virtually. Thanks for turning your uh, camera on. Uh, I'll hand it over to Executive Director Metric. Thanks the floor. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. I know it's been a long day, but this is very special. I, th I thank Rudy for joining us. Um, let me just say this, that Rudy, um, this is a very bittersweet uh, announcement. It's already been, uh, everybody knows that, but Rudy is uh, leaving us after 
uh, 23 years of service here at the port. But let me just say, I just want to say a couple things about Rudy Kaluza, that um, he's finishing up 46 years of distinguished public service. Now to think about that, that is almost half a century of public service uh, to, uh, after graduating from the University of Washington Foster School of Business, he served as a federal auditor with the, uh, the General uh, Government Accounting Accountability Office, GAO, in doing a con congressional audits, and then had 21 years with King County, um, and then came to us for the last 23 years serving as Director of Accounting and Financial Reporting, and then serving as a dual role of Director of ICT for a year, and then also established and directed the Port's Internal Audit Department during that time. And let me just say that his incredible lasting um, impact on the Port is, is that just that lasting. And, I mean, he is such a talented individual, but let me just say the word I think about when I think about Rudy Kaluza is ultimate professional, ultimate caring compassion, who's passionate about his people and about the work that he do does. And it's, it carries through all of that. So I know we him know from his work within AFR, but he's a champion of diversity. He has been the Charles Blood Champion of Diversity recipient of that award, Blacks in Government Leader of the Year Award, two-time awardee of the National Management Association Manager Award, and so he has an incredible legacy, but I think to me it's mostly the, the impact that he's had across the port of, of, uh, on all the groups uh, and all the people over those years of impacting and mentoring and furthering and advancing diversity within your organization. So Rudy, I know that um, you embrace our port values, you live those every day, and uh, for me I've always uh, valued your counsel in decisions that we made that's both in AFR but on other issues as well and especially through that time so Rudy I just want to say on the behalf of all the executive directors you served during this time as well for the last 23 years it's my honor to have worked with you and I deeply appreciate that and I wish you the best to you, your wow. wife your two sons and your daughter and, and whatever comes next and using some of your other many talents putting into effect as well. So thank you, Commissioners, for let me yeah. just bring that forward. And thank you, thank you so much, Steve. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and open it up to uh, Commissioners for comments as well, and then I'll give Rudy some time as well to reflect. Commissioner Hazardal. Congratulations, Rudy. <laughs> thank you so much, Commissioner Hazardal. Is my camera on? Yeah. yeah. Okay, you, you look great. Thank you. Well, you know. Too young to retire. You also led the, the port 17 years in a row to excellence in financial reporting. No big deal. And, um, and I think, you know, for speaking personally, you have done so much for the institution in, um, in helping shifting its internal culture as well. You know, when we think about people who have been pioneers and leading conversations, um, before anybody knew what the word equity even meant, it was you who was facilitating that um, here at the Port of Seattle. And for me, when I first arrived here a couple years ago, you never know whenever you're gonna go to a new institution how much you're truly gonna feel like you belong, but you were right there at the front door to hold it open for me so that I might walk through. Mm -hmm. I am eternally grateful to you for that. Okage samade. And um, I would say that in my, my, my heart of hearts, my, my deepest gratitude is that um, my timeline here at the port has overlapped with yours. Uh, truly, I feel like I've got to walk the hall with um, a living legend. So thank you so much, sir, and enjoy your rest. Thank you, Commissioner Haskawa. Don't worry at all. Commissioner Mohammed. Yeah, I also echo those same sentiments, and your lighting is great. I don't know if you have 
what kind of lighting you're using, but you're gonna have to tease me and give me a it's that youthful complex. Let me know how to look that good virtually. <laughs> but um, I also echo those sentiments. Thank you for your public service as the chair of the audit committee. You have come before us numerous times and have presented on difficult topics and you always do show a high level of professionalism. You have so much knowledge and insight and are just a, a good steward of public dollars. And um, every time I've seen you present, you've been accountable, transparent, and um, have always been a, a partner to us on that audit committee. Um, audit is not the sexiest committee, but I really love it. Um, it is, I think it's an important part of the work that we do as commissioners in providing oversight. and. Um, every time you've come in front of us, I've really appreciated that work. And um, in times where we've talked about issues around, uh, I, I think about the, the, the fraud case that we had with um, one of our grassroots organizations, and that moment was a difficult mm -hmm. moment. And there was, was a number of times where you had pointed to the importance of protecting our communities and our grassroots organizations and owning the moment and doing better. And um, I just appreciated that. And so thank you for your public service. Thank you for the hard work and the time that you've uh, put in at the Port of Seattle. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Commissioner Feldman. So Rudy, I was you know, given that opportunity to say, you know, kick in the shins on your going away party. And um, I completely blanked. You know, I, I was, I, I mean, like I said, I don't know you deeply, but one of the things that I knew that you kind of shaped my impression of you out of the get-go was when you presented to us about giving away port uh, used equipment to schools. And um, the fact that you take this on yourself and that you did this, but you did this because you received similar help of some sort of this type. And, and the, the level of heart by which you took that job on and, you know, it, it has influenced my impression of you ever since. And the more I got to know you, it's obviously your commitment to what is right is permeates who you are, and it really has been an honor to work with you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Rudy, 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 I don't know who approved your retirement, but I disapprove of your retirement. I said the same for Tom Tanaka and many others who have preceded your retirement, but. Um, you know, Commissioner Hazegawa referred to you as a legend, to me you're a titan. Um, and uh, you know, when I think of you and, and all you offered to the port, you know, besides all the great work you've done in your capacity uh, in your department, you know, one thing that always comes to my mind is that really you've never been afraid to say the right thing. Uh, you speak truth to power and you're a guy who keeps us accountable, um, you know, whether it's uh, in, in private or in public session. You know, I, my, my impression of you has always been that if you feel something is wrong, you would speak up uh, and tell, us to, uh, tell it to us straight, right? And, and you were fearless. Um, you're, you've been obviously a huge leader to uh, the API community, both within the port, but also uh, outside the port. Um, I know the ERG Happy is gonna miss you, but we also know that you're probably gonna show up at every happy event anyway going forward okay. post-retirement. Um, but I just want to thank you for, your, for, for everything you've done um, in your capacity here at the port, but also just as a leader. Um, I mentioned Tom earlier, but you know, uh, we often talk about the bamboo ceiling and how it's tough for uh, people who look like us to, to, to move it up, move up in these bureaucratic organizations, and you're, you're definitely a role model for us, so I really appreciate you paving the way and blazing that trail. 
Thank you, Commissioner Cho. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll let you have your bit. Oh, thank you. Well, I, you know, I, I came to America in uh, 1960, and I first stepped foot here through SeaTac International Airport with my mom, my brother, and me at four years old. And I'm probably Filipino on my father's side and probably Japanese on my mother's. And we came here as immigrants to unite with our father. And he saved money for many years of hard work, low pay, to get our path here. And we ventured through life together. And I grew up in Seattle, so inner city, the central district. It was a very enriching life. And that's what formed the uh, music soul and spirit in me, uh, growing up with black musicians and uh, soon to be releasing my smooth jazz CD after my retirement. Uh, I'm there almost. And uh, definitely I will provide the commissioners a copy uh, as well as the, um, <laughs> definitely an autograph too. <laughs> but yeah, I grew up in the central district and many know I grew up with little Petey Lyles. I mean, he was little back then, but he's huge now, tall man. But we're childhood friends. Um, when I first came from Japan and we grew up in our neighborhood, uh, a few blocks away from the Yester Terrace projects. And uh, we lived a very modest life uh, because of um, the situ situations we're all placed in, our families around there in the Central District. <clears throat> but you know, I would have never conceived then that 40 years later, uh, coming to America April 1960, and then April 2000, that the fort would hire me, the International Gateway that first welcomed me to America at Seattle, International, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, and allowed me to continue my career uh, as director of accounting financial reporting. And 23 years later today, I would be here before the Port Commission in public session to be acknowledged, also soon to transition to retirement. Life flies by so fast. Uh, and it is truly an honor for me to express my heartfelt appreciation to you, our exceptional policymakers, our Port of Seattle Commission, that I respect so highly over the many years I worked here at the Port of Seattle, and Executive Director Steve Metric, and Chief Financial Officer Dan Thomas, who are very solid leaders at our, of our port, and to all of you uh, for believing me and empowering and supporting me to do my thing and make a positive difference here at the port. Um, I've had a wonderful 46 years in public service, as outlined by uh, Executive Director Metric, uh, key, though, is I'm very proud, just as much as our commission, with regard to being the first. And uh, becoming the first Asian American immigrant to be appointed as Director of Internal Audit of the Executive Branch of King County Government, and then appointed as Chief Accounting Officer for King County Government as a whole. And then now here at the Port of Seattle, the past 23 years, the first Asian American immigrant as director of internal uh, director of accounting financial reporting and also at one point i was asked to serve in a dual role along with my afr director role as interim ict director for 13 months that was a tough seven days a week thing for 13 months but i did it because i honored the commitment and the trust that was given to me uh, and i also was given the opportunity to probably develop the port's internal audit department to where it is today and now reporting to the commission and to me, the Port of Seattle is an exceptional institution in, in our region. I am always proud to be a part of our significant progress through your policy direction and leadership at the commission level, as well as the executive level, and the notable contribution as a result that we make in our region's <clears throat> economic vitality and uh, improving the quality of life for all of us. So I'm honored that during my tenure, 
uh, I was nominated for the various awards recognizing me for my leadership. Um, I have given my life dedication to honor the public trust bestowed upon me in public service. And I, I also like to acknowledge our accounting financial reporting department. Uh, we are comprised of many exceptional leaders at the senior and second tier officer level, and they are my A-team throughout my career. They are A-team here at the Port of Seattle. And I feel so good I'm able to leave uh, the Port of Seattle in very good hands with such exceptional leaders, along with the dedicated and valued team members in our accounting and financial reporting department. And uh, proud of our accomplishments that we achieved together as a department, as an AFR family. And uh, among many, just to name a few, uh, and I'd like to mention it again, it is the, eight, uh, the consecutive years of uh, receiving the earning for the Port of Seattle, the Financial Reporting and Excellence Award from the Government Finance Officers Association of the United States and Canada, to the many clean audits we achieved and received from the Port's independent certified public accounting firm of our financials and internal controls, as well as the State Auditor's Office and the Public Accountability and Legal Compliance Audits. And I also express appreciation to a productive rapport with our own Port Internal Audit Department and its wonderful professional auditors. Um, so I'm blessed to have the opportunity to be a part of the leadership team at the Port of Seattle. And I thank you, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric and our executive leadership team. And I thank all the many professional team members at the Port of Seattle for valued partnerships, for your support, and the opportunity to work with you. And very importantly, though, I'd like to get back to a personal level. I express my sincere appreciation uh, for the sacrifices immigrants made by my late father and my mother who passed uh, last year <clears throat> to give me uh, the life I have. Excuse me. <clears throat> and my wife, June Wong, for her solid support throughout all these years and sacrifice into my family as well as uh, my nephew, uh, Eric Chin, who works at the airport, ground, mm. uh, airport ground transportation. Uh, he's been a, a, a partner uh, with me here at the port as well. Um, and, but ultimately to God, thank you for blessing and guiding my life on the straight path all of these years and <clears throat> to have the life I've had. So Commissioner Fellman, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Muhammad, thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa, and Commission President Shaw Kahan Samnida. I sincerely express my appreciation and to um, uh, Commissioner Calkins uh, in absentia. Uh, I thank you as well. I appreciate this. Kamsamida, Ruby. All right. Um, are there any general closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? All right. Executive Director Metric. I have to just acknowledge the fact that this war in Israel has called up my uh, my brother-in-law's entire family is on on uh, on call. It is an unprecedented moment in time, and that's a great concern to my family personally. I'd also like to acknowledge the fact that this is Indigenous Peoples Day, and that we are doing more and more work with tribes that I'm very proud of. And if you didn't see the video, I got to ride on an electric hybrid electric carbon fiber uh, hydrofoil down at Des Moines. And uh, the innovation that's going on in the marine environment is great. We just have to make sure we're not running over whales in the process. <laughs> but I take that as a moment of great joy. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Fallon, for those uh, comments. Hearing no other further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned at 4.05 PM. Thank you all. Thank you.